Hey guys, if you're on Spotify right now, please hit that follow button on the page. It is a huge help towards growing the show on this platform, and I really appreciate all of you who have already done so. To everyone who's listening to the show for the first time, welcome, and I hope you enjoy. It almost seems like they're watching us like a god a little bit, if this is the case, to make sure we don't destroy ourselves. So I interviewed a number of eyewitnesses regarding that aspect of the phenomenon, and that is particularly during the Cold War, the height of the Cold War. They are witnessed in Russia and all scattered across the United States. And this launch control officer, Robert Salas, I'll never forget this. He said, well, James, the message I got when they shut our nukes off It's almost like they were taking matches out of the hands of a baby. figure out this camera thing yeah we'll get it there but james this was a small world situation with you coming in because a few months ago i I had alessi over here who's in the studio who's longtime friend now future producer of this show but i had alessi in here about i guess a year ago now it was january Mm -hmm. right and he had just helped you produce this documentary down in brazil and about seven months later my friend danny jones from concrete calls me up and goes yo i got this really cool guy coming in tomorrow James Fox. And I'm like, like the James Fox? And he's like, yeah. And then that podcast went to Mars because no pun intended because people loved it. And so now we got you here. And I'm excited to have in someone who was actually on the scene with you as well. But- yeah, I almost got him shot too. So, <laughs> <laughs> But for people that don't know, you drove down here from Vermont. So that is some, I, I that's some clutch shit right I there. Did. And I appreciate you doing that. Yeah, well, I got on the airplane and... Uh, Early morning flight. I think I got up around three thirty a.m. and which I hate getting up. I hate early <laughs> flights. I'll stress about them for weeks. And I get to the airport, and then the lines are long, and I get to security, and I'm just like, oh, it's getting me on this airplane, me out of here. You know, I'm <laughs> way in the way back, further seat, all the way back, about an inch from the toilet. And I'm sitting there. I was like, all right, well, at least it's a quick flight. So we're on the runway for over an hour. I'm like, why is this plane not taking off? They're just leaving us in the dark here, you know. And then it's like. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we got a slight problem. Um, <laughs> one of our engines is has failed us. Why didn't that I'm pilot thinking, go, fuck it, we're going to give it a go? <laughs> I, I know. I was sitting there going, well, at least it, it failed now as opposed to on you know halfway into takeoff, right? <laughs> 75% shot, we're good. I'll take those odds. <laughs> we're, going, we're going down. So, so then he's like, he's like well, um, we're going to sit on the tarmac and we're going to have the mechanic come and fix the uh, engine. I'm thinking... <laughs> The mechanic's going to come and fix the engine on the tarmac? Like, let's take this airplane back. He goes, it's gonna, the, the mechanic's going to be here in about an hour and 45 minutes. Like, <laughs> you got to be kidding me. We're going to sit here with duct for an hour and 45 minutes waiting for the mechanic who doesn't even know what's wrong with the engine because he hasn't seen it. I'm like, I turned to the woman next to me. I was like, this is not adding up. And uh, so we sat there for about an hour, and I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be on this plane forever. I should have been landing by now. So then he goes, actually, we're going we're, we're gonna to cancel this flight altogether. We're going to bring it in. And at which point, 
you know, I I uh, decided to drive down. You made that decision. You called me as you was canceling the flight, like on the plane, and within ten minutes, you were behind the wheel of your car. Yeah. That was yeah. that was some clutch ass yeah. fast decision making right there. Yeah, I didn't even the queue at the desk at the American Airlines desk was so long, and everyone's flight situation was so complicated because they had connecting flights that were that they were missed, and so I knew that each person was going to take forever. So I left. Good call. Well, yeah. now you're here. Did win line. And it is also coming about, what, two and a half months since you released your latest documentary, Moment of Contact? Yes. And great job on that, by the way. Thank you. And great job as well. Yes. Unless you appeared yep. in that thing. Yeah. But the story about Virginia, which, I, I, you know... I was not familiar with that before Alessi went and did it in 2021 with you and was telling me all about it. I'm like, holy shit, you know, this isn't that long ago. It's 1996. Yeah. And we're going to get all into it. But, you know, for you to be able to do this now, I want to give you a huge, huge thumbs up in that you've devoted your life to this. Yes. And you're now at a point after the phenomenon, which was your previous documentary mm -hmm. in 2020, which we'll talk about later today. You're at a point now where you can finally put a ton of resources into these and it's not just you going around the world and doing every single thing. And it's really paying off because the storytelling and the style of this documentary is like a sucker for simplicity and putting things together beautifully. Like it, it was brilliant and I can't recommend it enough to people. Well, you know, it's, it's funny you, you say that because I was just, you know, wondering myself, do you ever feel like you always have this idea in your mind as an artist um, maybe as you're doing podcasts, where you'd like to eventually be, mm. right? And then you kind of maybe get there, <laughs> maybe, yeah. But you question, like with the phenomenon, it was a pretty big success. Uh, thank God, because I nearly died making it. Um, it was either going to die or the film was going to succeed. There was no in between. Like was no, that like no, eight years? Eight years in the last. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Snapple. Welcome to the Snapple Market Auditory Experience. Close your eyes. Imagine you're walking into your neighborhood store. You make your way to the back and reach for your favorite Snapple flavor. You can't wait. You take a sip. Whoa, that's a lot of flavor. Mmm. What flavor are you holding? Now open your eyes and check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavorful Snapple near you. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Like, the last push was so intense that I was in a ball crying for days. And I remember my partner, Rebecca, bringing me food. At the, I, I was up in this attic. She came up the stairs and she would leave the food for me at my foot because I couldn't even talk. And I was just, oh, oh. I'm not kidding you. I had lawsuits and people suing everybody. And then the distribution company saying, you know what, we're just going to shelve this. I finally get it done after eight years. And now I'm looking at the prospect that my movie's going to be shelved. Because it's a liability. Because everyone's trying to sue everybody else. Who was trying to sue? We had the we had the the pandemic hit, and it was going to be released in theaters, and so that got shut down. Oh. So then we pivoted to Netflix, and Netflix makes us a huge offer, and we're negotiating this huge Netflix original for the phenomenon, 
And I have this outside guy who will remain nameless because it doesn't matter, but he negotiated the whole deal. He approached me. And then, you know, after weeks and weeks and weeks of negotiations, we have a multi-million dollar deal on the table, super pumped. All of a sudden, my distributor is like under the cloud of COVID. Whoa, like time out here. We can't sign. I said, what do you mean we can't sign? <laughs> he said, we accidentally signed a deal non-exclusive with Discovery Channel. Oh. Yeah. So Netflix is going, well, how come we haven't signed? We're like, well, there's just one little thing we're unwinding. Just, everything's good. Like, don't worry about a thing. And then like week after week after week and, and Discovery Channel wouldn't talk to me. By the way, guys, just some context as to why I reacted that way about Discovery Channel. I've heard some not-so-positive stories about them behind the scenes, and one of those stories is also very public. In episode 124, Paul Rosalie spent the first 20 minutes of that conversation explaining about his dealing with Discovery Channel and how it almost ruined his life. So you can check that out later after this podcast. And this is when the pandemic had started. This is like oh, yeah, the pandemic summer 2020. Hitting, everyone's suing. So now the guy that put the deal together for Netflix, as he's seen it come unravel, is going, I just put my reputation on the line. I just got this whole deal buttoned up. Like, I'm, you know, I'm going after you, and I'm going, you know, I don't really blame him. I mean, he did get screwed, but it wasn't my fault, Yeah. you know? And so he's coming after this, and then there's lawyers that he has and lawyers that I have, and then there's my backers' lawyers are worried about, because they've got deep pockets, you know, that they're going to get sued. So everyone's lawyered up, and I'm going, and I'm helpless in the middle of it. I'm just accumulating hundreds of thousands of dollars in lawyers' fees, <laughs> and I'm already a million dollars in debt for making the movie. You were a million dollars in debt. Yeah, I was a million dollars in, in debt. Million dollars in debt. We're going to talk about that today. You re you really have dedicated your life yeah, to this. And, it's amazing. And, and I and I and and now now all of a sudden it looks like my movie's not even going to be released. Could you imagine spending eight years? I'd end it. Eight years, <laughs> the movie's done, and it's brilliant. Everybody loves it. It's like a masterpiece, right? It it's was. the movie you spent your whole career trying to make. Finally. And it looks like it's crash and burn time. And I was, I had the end of my rope. I, I couldn't, I, the stress levels and the, you know, my partner, Rebecca, was just like, when is this? I don't blame her. Okay, I'm not attacking her at all. I completely understand her saying this. When is this nightmare going to end? This has been going on. You're so in debt. It's taking the family down. We got a more, you know, all this stuff. I had no money. How old was your kid? Like four? My son was probably four or five, maybe mm. five, maybe maybe five and a half. So you're a newish dad. I'm a newish dad. You know, yep. all these years I'm working on this. Super duper broke. I mean, like, you know, I had some money in the bank from my funders, but I was so much more in debt, right? Yeah. I mean, at the time, I mean, there was a period during the making of the phenomenon where I didn't even have a bank account. Whew. And I remember some of the people I was working with, they were like, well, what do you mean you don't have a bank account? I was like, oh, I got some tax issues. And they, every time I put money in my account, it gets taken from the feds. So I got to <laughs> deal with that. I got to deal with it. I haven't dealt with it yet. You're like, okay, I've never said it, met anyone who's making a movie with not a bank account. <laughs> There were moments where I was so broke I could barely afford to pay attention. I mean, I'm not kidding. Well, yeah. it worked out, and it's, it did, and I think God. that's I think that is some some universe talking to you because there are a lot of people who try to go after something, it gets a little hard, and even some people who stick with it, they give up after two, three, four, five years. You were doing this and working other jobs, because you made two other documentaries, by the way, oh, over yeah. the years. You've been, you did it for 25 years, 30 yeah. years of your life, yeah. and so you're you're finally getting to that point, and then you put out 
with the phenomenon, a documentary that has Senator Harry Reid, who's now, he's like dead as fuck, right? Yeah, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, he's, yeah bless his heart. RIP yeah. Harry. But yeah. Harry was on there. You had David Fravor on there. You had your friend Jacques Vallée on there, yep. who you went on Rogan with him, yes. right? And that yeah. was after when that documentary came out? Yeah, that was, uh, I think we went on Rogan about a month and a half after the film came out. So probably December of 2020. 21 no 20 2020 right 2020 okay yeah, yeah it's the end of 2020 and then you had you brought christopher mellon on camera for the first yes. time who we will talk about later yes. he was the guy who you walked, said he walked him out right? walked the tapes out the evidence out of the pentagon on, onto the front page of the new york times insane so you had yeah. all these people in here and it really truly is a masterpiece because it takes it takes you in a timeline of really all the major ufo potential sightings that have occurred since like 19 since world war ii yeah and you I'll explain get, why I did that. You get the well. Please explain. Okay. Yeah. So let's let's go there. Yeah, because people say to me like, "Oh, I really enjoyed the the." Some people enjoy the first half. Some people enjoy the second half. I said, "Look, I get it because the the problem I was dealing with a number of problems. One is no one's ever going to believe the second half if they don't have the first half. Yes. Okay. Good call. If I was to transcend the UFO community and penetrate a much more mainstream audience, I had to set the story or the likelihood of the landing in Rua, Zimbabwe, 1994 at Ariel School. I had to set up the likelihood of that happening. Otherwise, no one's going to believe it. I wouldn't mm. believe it. A UFO lands at a school in Africa and the occupants get out and interact with like 100 school children witnessing this in broad daylight come on man that's a pretty tall tale right compelling as hell too compelling as hell yeah it but really if you have is. no background on the phenomenon prior to that story i myself of course had trouble believing that because i heard about that story in the 90s when i was making my first ufo film called and you didn't believe it right absolutely let me tell you how i didn't believe it so i was just naive enough to think in the 90s that i could get an interview with steven spielberg <laughs> and i had a we had a mutual friend this woman named Janet Yang. And, uh, hey, Janet, can you get me an interview with Spielberg? I thought he was going to just say, you know, of course I was in my 20s. And, you know, I thought, yeah, of course he's going to say yes. He's in <laughs> UFOs. I'm doing a documentary on UFOs. And, and uh, he goes, uh, he, he, of course, totally, you know, says no. But he said to her, um, tell James if he's doing a film on UFOs. And I think it was probably 1997 or 96, 96, 97, something like this. You should uh, tell him that he should look into the, this landing case at a school in, in Zimbabwe. Mm. And I thought, oh, come on, man. Like, you know, seriously, this guy's trying to waste my time here. I, you know, came from Spielberg, but I didn't, I didn't waste any time. I didn't look into it at all. I, refu I didn't, just like the new film, Moment of Contact. Mm. I'd heard about that case in the, late, in the late 90s, and I refused to look into that case. Because I just think the, sorry, I don't know why I got the sniffles here. You have to edit that. <laughs> Sorry. I'm leaving. It's not what it looks like, I swear. <laughs> no, I don't have COVID. We were out late last night. <laughs> it's, been, it's been a long two days for you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. No. Um, but anyway, you know, I set up the phenomenon doing an historical perspective from 1947 to modern day, and I did it because I knew that no one, if I penetrated a broad m mainstream audience, no one in that audience is going to believe the landing happened in, in Africa and made contact with these school children if 
I didn't give them a snapshot history of of the phenomenon. And it's and and we'll break it down later. But the a really compelling aspect about that is the similar descriptions. You oh know, yeah. When you go through that documentary, and and some of it is some people who are dead now, and you're using historical footage and whatever, and others you have the people who are still alive talking about it, and they these are people from all over the world: Australia, Zimbabwe, United States, South America, whatever, and they're describing such similar imagery. Where it's like, does that mean it's not possible? That's not true. Well, nothing's impossible, but the when when you put that as like a mountaintop of evidence for people who have never really like looked into this before or cared even and, and are like aliens what the fuck yeah. you look at that and now you're like hmm okay I, I can't i can't dismiss this there is definitely some sort of no pun intended phenomenon here is it of this earth maybe is it of another planet maybe and that right there is enough to move what some people would would call you know the 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 crazy lane that was aliens for a long time into the mainstream, which guys like you have done guys like Joe Rogan have done it as well. Like talking about it, bringing guys like you on. So I, um, found the children's testimony, archival footage that Dr. John Mack and the BBC did back in 1994. So Dr. John Mack, who was a Harvard psychiatrist at the behest of a guy named Lawrence Spellman Rockefeller. He was funding a ton of UFO research back in the 90s. And one like of- a rock, Like a real Rockefeller. Real Rockefeller, mm. yeah. Lawrence Spellman Rockefeller. And he was funding all this research and he was also twisting the hand of President Bill Clinton at the time. And basically, I know all this because I dug into it for the phenomenon. A lot of this, the aspects of this I didn't include in the film, but he was, he was like, come hell or high water, we're going to get government transparency on UFOs and we want to get this stuff out to the general public. And Rockefeller told Clinton, if you don't do this, I'm going to put it on every headline of the fact that you're refusing to do this. And Clinton did have a, a, an honest in, interest in the phenomenon, for sure. And he did go after it. Uh, Rockefeller asked him, what case do you want, you know, what case do you, uh, oh, sorry, Clinton asked Rockefeller, what case do you want me to go after? And pick one case. And Rockefeller said, Roswell. Can you explain to people what happened in Roswell who don't know? Because this is yes. like the most, in my opinion, at least from what I've looked at, I don't know if you agree, but it's probably like the most important UFO event in the history of at least the United States. Certainly, yeah. So in nineteen in July of 1947, the uh, military, the United States military, it was the 509th Bomb Squadron based in Roswell, New Mexico. It was the only bomb squadron at the time exclusively responsible for the deployment of atomic weapons. The Enola Gay was there. Mm-hmm. It was a hand-select elite unit, and they announced to the world, this is a fact, that we recovered a flying saucer, a crashed vehicle from somewhere else. They announced it to the world. Probably less than 12 hours later, they... Um, I can go into the specifics if Please. you want. Yeah, so what happened was this guy, Jesse Marcel intelligence officer at the 509th went out with a guy named Mac Brazel. So Mac Brazel was a rancher and he had heard about these flying saucers. He'd heard about this reward for anything recovered or information. He had a huge ranch in the middle of nowhere, super remote spot. And he comes in the local base and he says, and he has some debris with him. And he says, um, you guys talk about these flying saucers. I think one of them crashed on my ranch. So they, of course, the 509th people, it was uh, 
Je- Major Jesse Marcel, and I don't remember the other name of the gentleman, that military guy. They went out with this guy on the ranch. They go in. They spend the night. They come back the next day. They got this debris. They make the termination. All right, we've got a, we've got a, cr- a crash of an unknown vehicle from another. Un- and they make the announcement, and they tell the world. The higher-ups get involved. They get a B-29. They put the debris on a B-29. They're going to take it to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Jesse Marcel's on the airplane. They fly with a, with a pit stop at Fort Worth in Texas. They get off the plane, and there's a media frenzy everywhere. This, world, this story is making headline news all across the world immediately. Oh, right, yeah. And there's a guy named General Roger Ramey. He's standing at the base of the airplane. He's at the base at Fort Worth. And he looks at Jesse Marcel, who just came off the airplane, and said, you keep your mouth shut and let me handle this. And so they go in to a room, there's a conventional weather balloon on the ground, just like balsa wood and tin foil paper. And he says, and it was uh, General Ramey, General Roger Ramey, it was uh, Jesse Marcel and Colonel DuBose. And uh, they throw this debris out there. He says, you just stand there. And uh, this is what we found. Smile for the cameras. And the, Smile for the cameras, yeah. And so they kill the story right there on the spot. Terribly sorry, what we once thought was a flying saucer. Turns out it's just a common everyday weather balloon. So this is actually... And Jesse and the, and the debris is on the B-29 sitting on the tarmac right there. And I'll put, it, I'll put this in the corner of the screen so people can see this. But if, uh, if you turn to the Je- TV behind you right now, <clears throat> yep. I just want to make sure so that we can give people yep. also like yep. the stuff you put together yep. so they can see this. I got those, as, I got as, those original photographs from, uh, from Roswell, the, the, the local paper in Roswell. The Riddler prints, those are really high-resolution photographs in the phenomenon. All right, guys, I got an important announcement about the show. The Patreon is officially, finally live. If you hit the link down in the description to the video or if you go to the YouTube channel page and go to the About section, you will find the direct link to the Patreon page, and I'm starting off with one $5 a month group. So I'm hoping that this is going to be a great driver to be able to scale this show and invest back in you guys At this point, I'm still the only employee of the show. I have one intern who cuts together a few clips for the second channel that has like 430 subscribers on it right now. So that's not really doing anything yet. But I have been at this for three years and every single thing from the comments all the way to the metadata to obviously all the edits and everything around this show has been on my shoulders. I think that's pretty normal for content creators who are coming up. That's just kind of the game and what it is. But in order to grow and really increase the content we do, I got to be able to invest and add some scale here and really add at least one person to be here in the trenches working with me every day. So I'm hoping Patreon is that outlet, and I would really, really appreciate your guys' support. We are going to start off with 15 minutes of exclusive content being posted this week from – James actually in the studio here and it was basically when the cameras were on in between what became the two podcasts we did that's right this is only the first of two podcasts coming and it had nothing to do with either of the two conversations so I'm going to take that 15 minutes and put that on Patreon and that will be the first content we put there and hopefully we can add some things moving forward but to be clear this page has been something that some fans have been in my ears about for a long time to do to be able to scale the show and, and invest back in all of you. So I, I'm taking the advice and, and hopefully it works out. So thank you to everyone who's going to support it and hope to see you over there. 
Who was this guy, by the way, walking through That's his vehicle? Jesse Marcel. That's who you're talking about. Yes. Okay, so this is this is him reliving Come, it. Yes. And this was this. I forget. Was this your footage? Uh, no, this was shot this in was the older. '80s, and yeah. I, I'm it, the most rare footage in the history of this case. We did a laser-like focus on Roswell. I got the number one researchers, Stanton Friedman, Kevin Randall. I got um, Don Schmidt, all the people that wrote the book on Roswell. And they said, this is an aspect that everyone has missed. I put a laser-like focus on it. I must have spent nine months, maybe mm. maybe a year, getting just the facts on this case. Just, I remember, uh, I remember Dr. Um, uh, uh, Jacques Vallée, and he was a little hesitant. He was like, ooh, Roswell's a hot, kind of a hot-button issue. I, he, he would sit in the back of the edit room with me. Jacques Vallée is like one of the most respected yes. intellectual heavyweights on the planet alive today in the scientific community. And he is uh, working with me on the phenomenon. He was reluctant. He was like, ooh, are you sure you want to touch Roswell? I said, yeah, I'm going to do Roswell. And he would sit in the back of the edit room and he'd say, just the facts, ma'am. <laughs> wow. <laughs> just the facts, ma'am. That's so awesome. that's what this this segment is. So that's that's Jesse Marcel. Let, let's actually, let's play this part. Oh, if you go don't for mind, it. Oh, right please here. go so for I it. Have, Absolutely. This is from the phenomenon. This is about some maybe an hour into the documentary you did. This is the one yep. from 2020. You couldn't even bend it. You couldn't bend it. Even with a sledgehammer, would bounce off it. Marcel was ordered to immediately transport the strange wreckage to Fort Worth Army Airfield. There, Marcel was met by the commanding general who told him to keep silent in the face of what was becoming a media frenzy. They had a whole flock of microphones there. They wanted me to, to they wanted some comments from me, but I wasn't at liberty to do that. There Marcel it is. was it's instead ordered to pose with wood, foil, and rubber debris from a conventional weather balloon. The real stuff was on the airplane on the tarmac, All just I could like. All I do is keep a mouth shut. Wow. And General Ramey is the one who told the newspapers what it was and to forget about it. It was nothing more than a weather observation balloon. Of course, which we, we both knew differently. Both knew differently. Colonel Thomas Debose. And he said, that's so confident. Colonel, Connors, uh, Colonel Debose. This is a. Can you play this one more oh, statement sure. by yeah, Colonel yeah. Debose? Absolutely. Because huh. this guy was. Also in the photograph, Colonel DeBose. Thomas DeBose, who was also ordered to pose with the fake debris, describes how an iron curtain of secrecy slammed down. This is the highest priority you can exhibit, and you will say nothing. More than top secret, as he said. Beyond that, this is the story we're going to tell the public. It was a cover story, the balloon part of it, in order... We don't have any more inquiries about what we picked up on the desert. Well, there you go. There's so, your... you know, I get the chills even to this day yeah. looking at that because you're going to tell me that a weather balloon is top secret? <laughs> Higher than top secret. Like beyond top secret, you know. That wouldn't have passed in the social media era. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Back then, take a few pictures, get in the papers tomorrow, it's yeah. over. So this happens, you know, and then, of course, I didn't even get into the bodies of Roswell because that's a whole other can of worms, but there's a preponderance of eyewitness testimony that would indicate there were bodies recovered as well. So, <clears throat> you know, um, getting back to Rockefeller and Clinton, Clinton went after Roswell and... Clinton was not happy with the answers they were getting. 
And I, I know this because I talked to all the people around Clinton at the time, even Sh- Sheila Widnall, Secretary of the Air Force, um, John Podesta. I talked to members of the Rockefeller family about it. Did you do that on camera? No. I was going to say, I nope. didn't see that. No, it's not in the film. I uh, kind of okay. kept that aspect of it as kind of off to the side, yeah. Mm-hmm. In any case, um, paralleling that push of the Clinton administration... Rockefeller was also funding this guy uh, who was at Harvard psychiatrist by the name of Dr. John Mack. And he was funding him and he was funding all these other UFO researchers, but really funding John Mack. So John Mack. The guy you were talking about, right? Yeah. So John Mack, with the funding of Lawrence Rockefeller, was flew down to Africa with a camera crew and documented, I think it was roughly 66 out of the 100 school children that were on the field that day, broad daylight, it was like 10 o'clock in the morning, yeah, 1994, uh, I think it was September 1994. And um, I find the testimony of the children so compelling yes. because it's one after the other. And they're all talking about these big, big black almond-shaped eyes and the telepathy that was the thing it was also you know as i as i listened to the testimony of these children i was so moved by it all these kids saying the same thing of course some of them saw the craft over here some of them saw it over there and they saw red lights and blue lights and green lights all metallic bright shiny object and it was almost like you, you got the impression that Whatever it was they were looking at was in between dimensions because it could appear here and appear over there. This is one thing that I that I I didn't share. It's certainly not in the movie, but according to the children, these beings that were roughly the size of them were as curious about the children as the children were of them, and they were mimicking the children's behavior on the playground they were almost like because the children would get to these in africa in in zimbabwe i was told that the if if the grasses and stuff weren't maintained and and mowed there were dangerous snakes and spiders and things of that nature out there so the children were not allowed to go beyond these big telephone poles that were defined the perimeter of the playground but being children they would go all the way out to these poles and they would skip and dance on them knowing that if they went two inches to the right, they would be out of bounds, which they weren't allowed to do, they'd get in trouble for. So they would skip along these poles, and the children told me, as, as, as adults, that these little creatures were mimicking their skipping behavior in a very benign fashion. Didn't just, you say something about they were, like, jumping on the logs with them, too? And skipping the... along. They were kind of floating along the logs, according to the children, very happily and non-threatening, but they were as curious of the children as the children were of them, according to the eyewitness witness testimony. And it was the preponderance of eyewitness, firsthand eyewitness testimony. I mean, you think about 100 school children in broad daylight, all seeing something completely inexplicable. There's no terrestrial explanation to what those children saw. I'm trying to remember, did the kids, because you interspliced this with Dr. John Mack's interviews from back then when they were all children, and then you brought some of these now adults back to discuss it, and you did it on camera at the school. 
I remember in the documentary the adults described telepathy. Yes. Did the I don't know if the kids used yes. the word, but did they describe how the it was the aliens were communicating with them in their mind? Yes. Yes, they did. The children did. Yes, that they would see imagery, that they they were communicating tel- telepathically with these children. And what were they saying to the children? They were depicting uh, destruction of the planet. Um, technology was going to be our downfall. That was amazing. That the things of that nature, that. and this, all these children were saying, "No, no." Not every child had the telepathic communication, but the ones that came face to face. Like many? if you look at Selma, a good percentage. I don't honestly, I don't know because I didn't talk to all those, you know. But a lot of them. So, you know, you have Dr. John Mack. He had, I think, sixty-six children on camera, both in the playground and sat down interviews inside, and they all saw either the craft or the beans at a distance, and there were a handful. Because there were different groups of kids in different locations. Everyone froze. I mean, they were just like, what the hell are we looking at here? And some of them had face-to-face con- face-to-face contact, uh, like Selma, for instance. And I said to Selma and Liesl, um, well, how close were you to this creature? Yeah. She said, about a meter. <laughs> well, a meter is like three feet, right? So that's like arm's length. And it was the same size as them, you Same said. size as them, yeah. Which is how these are often described at all these. They're childlike size. Really funny because they interview this one kid, and it's on the archival footage, and, and the person asking, so, so how exactly how big was 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 this bean or whatever you call it? And the kid goes, about my size. <laughs> about my size. It was so cute. Oh, my gosh. And they talked about it so matter-of-factly, you know. And there's no bias with children, like uh, uh, at that no. level, you know. They're just, it's, they're not saying like, we saw aliens from Alpha Centauri, or you know, it's like here, here's what we saw. We all saw it, and uh, you know, and and the other thing is that they they felt that the adults had let them down. Well, of course, the adults didn't have an explanation for what had happened. The school teacher, then school teacher, now she's the headmistress, Judy Bates, actually had her own experience with this thing, and she kept it quiet because she was in fear for her career, her reputation. So she felt terrible. I actually went to Africa and I met with her and she apologized. I said, I like to say to the children, she's like, I'd like to apologize. I was dealing with my own kind of Mm. experience. And she was concerned about her reputation and her career and her future and decided to just keep that quiet for 20 whatever plus years. And what, what year did you visit there again, like 2018? I went there in like 2017, 2018, something like God. that. Yeah. So here's a little clip from, I, I, I think this was Selma, because I don't remember all their names, but yeah. not, not her right there. She's about to come on. This alleged encounter caught the attention of Pulitzer Prize winning Harvard psychiatrist, Dr. John Mack. Seemed that he was looking at all of us. Is that her? Yep. Uh, that's, like so that's Liesl. Liesl. She had face-to-face telepathic communication. Felt scared. So did Salma. Scary about it. All right, so she said, I felt scared. Well, felt scared because I've never seen such a person like that before. And I saw this person, and it had big eyes. That's all I saw about it. Yeah, big that's eyes. Emma. She lives in Australia now. Quite a long top. Mm-hmm. With a big head and eyes that are, are bigger than ours. How much bigger than ours? Four or five times the size. Four or five times the size of ours. So then I was looking at him, right? 
yeah. then he was looking at me back. How could you just keep on looking at him so I had to stop and I look sideways? But I was looking straight into his eyes. Well, and none of them never ran. Said anything. It's just that Frozen the face was the eyes. Maybe they're trying to communicate with us, show us something which we don't know about. I think they want um, people to know that we're actually making harm on this world mm. and we mustn't get too technologized. We don't. Okay, so that's yeah. what they, I, I want to leave it right there yeah. because here's a very, I think, central question around some of these ufo sightings and we're we're skipping around a little bit today we're going to get to a moment of contact very soon i do want to take it there deliberately but i want to stay with this for a second in a lot of the ufo cases that maybe we'll get to later again in the phenomenon there's the mention that these ufos will appear at nuclear testing sites or nuclear bases where they have the actual weapons Yes, And there's even reports that the weapons, a lot of reports, where the weapons suddenly inexplicably become disabled when these things have appeared. And we've had military guys that you had in, in your documentary, even old guys who, this was years ago, testify about this. There's been a ton of sightings in Russia that are of the same thing. And they keep showing up very often, obviously not in the case of the Zimbabwe one, but they show up at the places that house the weapons that at least since World War II, have been the most dangerous potential warning sign of us having the end of humanity if we started to hit that button. And you kind of wonder when they come and, and talk to these kids playfully in a way. And, and I, I can't put myself in their shoes. Who knows where the fuck they're from or you know what kind of time or theory of relativity they've figured out, which is obviously far beyond us. But it almost seems like they're watching us like a god a little bit if this is the case to make sure we don't destroy ourselves and then they come to innocent little children playfully talk with them in a tele- in a telepathic way where these kids they're they're fucking 8 years old 7 years old and they're talking about how we're this is in 1994 before the internet mm-hmm. how we're destroying the planet and doing all this shit to it and that's the warning they give it's almost like that was a way for them to go communicate to the everyman through the eyes of an innocent child the things that they're trying to say by saying, don't hit that fucking button, idiot, when they're standing at these nuclear bases or flying over these nuclear bases. So I interviewed a number of uh, eyewitnesses regarding the um, that aspect of the phenomenon, and that is they're seen over these, particularly during the Cold War, the height of the Cold War, they are witnessed in in Russia and all scattered across the United States. And this launch control officer, Robert Salas, I'll never forget this. I think I included this in the film out of the blue I did. He said, you know, because he was so funny. It was like, I could tell why he was a launch control officer because he had these nerves of steel. He was just super calm, just measured, calm, collected, not the kind of guy that would, you know. And he goes... Well, James, the message I got when they shut our nukes off, it's almost like they were taking matches out of the hands of a baby. So he said to me, I was like, wow, I, I think about that all the time. You know, it's like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't be playing with these. You know? Yeah. Yeah, that was the message he got. So it was really funny, you know, because that aspect of the phenomenon is is just crazy, right? Because... 
if these things are coming over our most like guarded areas and shutting down our nukes, shutting them on, turning them on in some instances, but just to kind of let them know that they had full control. Wow, that's kind of intense. That's a that's a kind that's of an issue of national security. Yeah, and if it ain't, I don't know what is. I'd known about this, but I wasn't going to include it in the phenomenon. I just didn't want to go down that rat hole. Why did you then? Well, because when I got an interview with former Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, we had a, an amazing interview. He was the one that started that ATIP program that ultimately ended up at ATIP, that secret Pentagon UFO program. Didn't that interview almost like not happen or something? Yes. Were you telling me that? Yes. What was that but, story? Well, I'll tell you that in a second because okay. that's pretty damn funny. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty funny. Well, I don't know. For some reason during the sit-down interview, and it was a big moment for me in my, in my career. Like, yeah. I have George Knapp to thank for that. I said, uh, we had a quick walk and talk, and he had a very limited amount of time with me. I mean, it was like, you know, I'm going to be from here to here, and then I'm out. And he had, like, security and all this stuff, and he was an important guy. And uh, I said, hey, do you mind if I get a quick walk and talk? He's like, he's like, okay, I think I got about a minute and a half. I was like, all right. So we're walking down this hallway. I told Dave, my DP, I said, uh, don't, don't worry about lighting and everything. We just got to get this, you know, handheld, just walk, walk and talk. We got to, you know, better, better something than nothing. So I'm walking. I'm like, well, I might as well ask them, you know, a question. Didn't have any, like, professional audio gear or anything. But I said, what was more, one of the more astonishing aspects of the phenomenon that you uncovered during this Pentagon UFO program? And without even pausing, he said, the fact that they're flying over our nuclear installations and shutting them off. I thought, oh, my God, did, did the former Senate Majority Leader just say that on camera to me? Wow, that's incredible. And that was something I just forgot to ask him. I, don't, I didn't think about asking him that question during our interview. Why do, you, why do you think he did it? Did the interview? Yeah. I mean, he had been around forever. I know. You know, it's such a risk for someone's reputation. You know... He did that program all the way through the tail end of the Bush presidency, all the way through Obama's presidency, and then if, and then into Donald Trump's presidency before it came out. So that program was secret. And I wonder if Christopher Mellon and Lou Elizondo and a handful of others behind the scene hadn't opted to do what they did, find a loophole, retire, step down, Lou left in protest of the excessive secrecy. What was his job title? Lou Elizondo, he ran the UFO desk. He ran that program, right. the ATIP. And, you know, there's been controversy around Lou. I'm like, Lou was exactly who he says he was, and he did exactly what he said he did. I mean, I spoke to Senator Harry Reid about it, and I actually, you know, was there when Lou got the letter from Senator Harry Reid confirming all the things. Lou was head of that program. Lou stepped down in protest of excessive secrecy. They found a loophole and Christopher Mellon walked that evidence out of the Pentagon, the go fast, the, 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 the Tic Tac videos. Is that David Framers? Yeah. yeah it was part of the Nimitz 2004 Nimitz, uh, 200 miles off the coast of San Diego, 2004 with David Fravor. And, and they were, uh, David Fravor, his Wizzo, I guess was the guy in the back seat, And then another pilot and his Wizzo. So, yeah, I think four pilots all in all. But in any case, he walked those tapes out on the front page of the New York Times. 
it's not because people go, why, you know, why are we experiencing uh, more government transparency? Because a handful of insiders decided that there's a, too much secrecy around this. There's something truly inexplicably going on. There's very compelling evidence, and the public has a right to know. So that's why, and now they can't put the genie back in the bottle, right? The intelligence people have been like, even Senator Reid said this to me on camera. He goes, when they found out I wanted to do a, a, a UFO program, even though it was hidden from the public, they were just putting the brakes on. No, we can't do this. No, no. He got so much resistance, and he fought back, and he made it happen. But it was still in secret. Obama didn't know about it. Bush didn't know about it. And Trump didn't know about it. Wow. Yeah, I know. I mean, I, in some ways, like, I know there's all kinds of, like, power broking behind the scenes in D.C., your position, like, the Democratic leader of the Senate, like, yeah. you've been there a long time. You were there before the president was there and everything. So there's, yeah. there, in some ways, I could see that. But still, to have someone that high profile talk about it is wild. And if I played, like, cynic devil's advocate for a second, if this were some, if if these things were the beginnings of all these crazy secrets that they possess that now they're admitting like they do have secrets to the public. I wonder if there's almost something way bigger that could very well have to do with aliens that they're trying to divert attention away from by throwing us things and acting like, oh, wow, yeah, no, this happened. Like, look at this fucking secret from 1955 we had. Yeah, yeah, we recovered that. And people are like, holy shit. But they'd really be going, oh, my God. Like, if they saw the real stuff that maybe they're not going to release. Like, I do wonder about that they definitely distraction. Have. We've only seen the tip of the iceberg. Oh, I know that, yeah. but I'm saying, like, they've talked about the icebergs there. Yeah. What about the other iceberg over there? The one, that, like, the Titanic hit. Like what, like, what if that's a way bigger iceberg and they're, like, not trying to draw attention to it? They're trying to divert attention by get carrot and a stick in it to all of us. Well, so this is something that I can give an example of obfuscation, okay, in my opinion. Mm. This is just my opinion. I'm not, nothing I'm stating is... Well, the stories I'll tell you are, are factual in the sense that they're out there and they're pretty credible. Um, I was investigating a landing case from 1964 in Socorro, New Mexico, from a police officer by the name of Lonnie Zamora, who was on mm. duty in a, in a hot pursuit. Socorro, New Mexico, 1964, Lonnie Zamora, your audience can look it up. And... In the process of that investigation, it was a close encounter of the third kind. And a close encounter of the third kind, and this was in the peak of Project Blue Book, five years before it got shut down. Can you tell people what Project Blue Book is? Yes. So uh, I'll go. To, so Project Blue Book was uh, Air Force investigations of UFOs from '47 to 1969 when it was terminated. It started off as Project Grut. Sorry, Project Sign. The conclusions of Sign were that we were being visited. That was scrapped. It went to Grudge, and then it went to Project Blue Book. But anyway, it was spanned from 47 to 69. In that uh, investigation, during the investigations, there was a guy named Dr. Uh, J. Allen Hynek. And Allen Hynek classified UFOs into three categories. One, close encounter of the first kind, someone sees a UFO. Close encounter of the second kind, they see the UFO and somehow the UFO interacts with the environment, whether it leaves burn marks on the ground or someone's mm -hmm. face or picked up on radar, photographed. It interacts with the environment somehow. It's there. Close encounter of the third kind 
is when, and this is like the Air Force's own files, it's not coming from me, is when there are reports of entities, beings associated with the UFO. So you have a UFO on the ground and you've got beings standing next to it. That was a case in 1964 with police officer Lonnie Zamora that I was investigating. In the phenomena. In the phenomena. Yep. Very good case. It was a turning point for one of the debunkers, the loudest debunker, Dr. Dr. Heineck, who did a complete 180. And that was one of the cases, apparently, that really swayed him because he found the credibility of the police officers so high. And there was physical evidence on the ground. And there were other people that saw the UFO. And he got within 35, 40 feet of a landed egg-shaped object. And you wonder when... The Tic Tacs were invented. I don't know what year they were. Were the Tic Tacs around in 64? Would Lonnie have described it as a Tic Tac? What the it Nimitz was, saw, like that It stuff. was a white yeah. egg shape. He called it a white egg-shaped craft with landing gear. And that's with, what he saw with the people right there. Uh, yeah, the, there were two beings, yeah, in white-fitting, like, coverall suits. And they looked uh, diminutive, like small, childlike is the way he described them. I'll put that picture in the corner of the screen so people can see. Yeah, and, and he had direct eye contact with it. So anyway, I'm investigating this case, and I'm really sticking my teeth into it. I mean, I went to the National Archives. I found never-before-seen archival stuff and drawings of the landing sites and photographs, and I'm finding archival footage. I, I befriended uh, Lonnie Zamora's wife, Mary. I became friends with her. I got her on camera for the first time ever. Because he's dead now. He's right? dead. Unfortunately, I missed him by a few years. Ugh. That's a whole other story. Damn it. Oh, there's so many things I wanted to ask him about. Was he killed before you could Oh, my gosh. Him? Well, there's. I, I, I don't want to go too far down this case, but it's a really good case, and there's physical evidence uh, to this case, and more than just landing imprints and footprints of the, of the creatures and all this other stuff. But I'm investigating this case, and I'm doing so over about a five-year span. I'm going back and forth to Socorro. It's like I said, I've got to know his wife. I got to know his daughter, Diane, and his son, Michael, and, you know, all his friends, people that he worked with. Got them all on camera. Some of them didn't end up in the film. God, I don't know why that happens. It just does. You think you get all this amazing stuff, but there's only so much. Yeah, I don't know squeeze. how you fit it all in. How do you squeeze it all into it? It's like one, one case in, among many other cases. You know what? Real quick, just side note. Have you ever seen the Frontline interview file? I don't know if that's what they're called, but like the PBS Frontline yes. interview files <clears throat> where they play the full interviews. Yes. They had a yes. separate that's content. A brilliant. That's a brilliant thing to do. You should do that. I am sitting on terabyte upon terabyte yeah. of interviews. Yeah. I probably have the biggest collection of UFO interviews in the, on the planet. Well, you should do that. Because I've been doing this for 30 years. Like, insane. Right? I have so many. And James, just, we're going to do that. I know. <laughs> I have so many. thing is, I don't have the bandwidth to do all this. But what I did do. Well, here you go. Yeah, Here's your bandwidth. <laughs> what I did do. What I did do uh, two years ago, right after I finished the phenomenon, I thought I got to get all my... Um, my my interviews and all my other hard drives and old hard drives and I got to put them all in one big fat drive. So I got two, I think 30, 35 terabyte drives, maybe 48 terabyte drives. I got a couple of them and I put everything on them. Every film Holy I've ever made, shit. every interview, they're all there. So and I got three back. I got one, you know, one in Vermont, one in California, one in a storage, you know. Don't tell people where this shit is. <laughs> you out of your mind? <laughs> Bustamante is going and finding it right now. <laughs> but, but no, it's a very good idea. Uh, I should definitely do that. But let me get back to this because this is interesting. Please. This is really interesting. I come across... 
and this is when I'm investigating the landing case, the close encounters of the third kind. I come across some articles by a woman named Corral Lorenzen at the um, UFO Chronicle or UFO Post she did during the 50s and 60s. She was a very prominent researcher, Corral Lorenzen. Um, I'm trying to think of the... Of the, of the or, anyway, I'm reading this article... Because quite honestly, I thought it had something to do with the landing at uh, at Socorro with the officer Lonnie Zamora. And one of the aspects, the Air Force, and they were on the scene within one hour, Army and Air Force, uh, they did not want Lonnie to talk about the fact that he saw these creatures. Downplay that. Don't talk about that. It's one thing to see an unidentified craft. It's an entirely different story when you're looking at some aliens, right? Yes. Or something that appears to be alien. Like, that's much more difficult to explain than an egg, okay? Everybody see the leprechaun say, yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, so they were really getting Lonnie to downplay that. So it was very difficult for me, and Lonnie's dead, to find, you know, the, 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 the aspects of that encounter of the creatures. But I found it. Mm. The media got there just before uh, the, the military arrived. Holder, his name was Richard Holder, and he was from White Sands. And he got there, and I actually talked to his kids. He unfortunately deceased, and they didn't make it in the film either, dang it. But they told me that the father took plaster casts of the alien's footprints in the ground and the, and yes. the, and the, uh, the landing prints of the craft, and they said it was in the middle, it was an arroyo in the middle of the desert, and it was really heavy, like they... They, there were no trucks, there were no tire tracks leading up to this site. So whatever it was came down and landed out of nowhere and left. And there were a couple of footprints exactly where Lonnie Zamora, the police officer, saw these creatures. And they were weird footprints. They were small. They were like... Yeah, you had this in the film, the footprints, totally, right? Totally, yeah. yeah. So anyway, so I'm investigating this, and I'll get to this other aspect in a second, because this is pretty amazing. So I read this article by Corral Lorenzen, the UFO Bulletin. And... Uh, talking about a landing. And I was like, oh, cool. You know, I'm going to get some more details on Socorro. And um, it's talking about a landing at Holman Air Force Base, a landing that was also a close encounter of the third kind. Mm. However, this one might have been filmed by the military at White Sands. Excuse me. Now, Holman is a stone's throw from Socorro. I mean, it's like as the crow flies, I don't know, a few minutes, I don't, 30 miles. I mean, it's, it's close. close. Okay. Well, I'm absolutely convinced that the Socorro case happened, but now I'm suddenly starting to hear about a landing at Holman. I don't exactly have a date. I think it might have been like right around the same time, but I don't have a date, uh, which would have been around 64. And I'm finding this reports from Corral Lorenzen from that time in 1964 pretty damn credible. I'm like, hmm. So then I find another article. And that leads me to, uh, it, was, it was testimony from people that were at the base at the time talking about a UFO, a flying saucer landing, and the occupants getting out. Now, I know this sounds extremely, un, like, what's the word I'm looking Outlandish, yeah. uh, untrue, yeah. too fantastic, whatever. I get it. But I'm leading slowly. Then I, I find a film called UFOs Past present, and future. And it was done by two guys, Emin Ager and Alan Sandler, in 1974. They probably started shooting in 60, 72, something like that, shooting. 
Now, these guys had, you can go out and watch the film. It's on YouTube. These guys had unprecedented access, military access, during their production. How'd they get it? I don't. Well, they got it from a guy named Colonel Coleman at the Pentagon, but that's, I won't go too far down that, but they did, they just did. And uh, in this production, they're working with Hynek, they're working with, uh, and Hynek was with Project Blue Book, the United States Air Force, but he's he's since left uh, the Air Force, it was 72, something like that. He's working with Quintanilla, who ran Blue Book. They're working with Robert Friend, who was also part of Project Blue Book. They're working with this guy, William T. Coleman, uh, who was uh, currently at the Pentagon? He was public liaison officer for the Pentagon, and he was working. They were working with him at the time. Like, how did these guys get this level of cooperation in 1972? Wow! And I could tell every aspect of this production was carefully crafted. Every word in this film was carefully crafted because they kind of had to because they were working with the military. Well, in this film, they talk about an incident at Holloman Air Force Base that maybe happened or could happen in the future, but it might have already happened. Could happen in the future. Yeah, exactly. So I'm like, huh. So I get in touch. I watch the movie, and I'm like, God, everything else is so factual. All the cases are so factual. Like, everything is like, you know, they cover Socorro. They cover all these other cases that I've covered that I'm very familiar with. I'm like, I don't know. There's something going on about this. So I contact Emmenager, excuse me, and I contact Alan Sandler, the guys that made the film. Emmenager is super willing to like go on the record and talk to me on camera, and he's super excited. He's like, yeah, they had film footage of that landing at Holloman. I said, what? Yes, they have film footage of a landing at Holloman. We almost got our hands on it. That's why we made the movie about an incident that may have happened mm. already, or maybe it's something that's going to happen in the near future. But isn't that interesting, okay? So so Emmenager is convinced that, and the relevance of this story will come out in a minute, I promise. No, this is good. Keep going. So Emmenager's convinced that this film footage of a UFO landing at Holloman Air Force Base and the occupants getting out and interacting with the base commanders exists. I know that sounds nuts. Believe me, I know that. But one of the producers of the film is convinced it happened. I said, well, why are you so convinced? He said, because the guy at Paul Shartle, who was at Norton Air Force Base, video, audio video department. I have a clip of him. I could show it, get it to you. Paul Shartle had the footage at Norton Air Force Base, and he was going to give it to us. And somehow the higher-ups got involved. And the footage vanished. I said, well, so then I'm going to Alan. I'm going, Alan, what's this about this footage? And why is it not in your movie? Like, what happened? He goes, oh, yeah, I was shown that footage. I said, well, hold on a second. (laughs) I'm driving my car, and I'm on the phone with him. Excuse me. And I said, excuse me, hold on a sec. What? He goes, yeah, no, I was shown that Paul Shartle showed me the footage. Well, Eminegger, your partner who you produced this movie with, doesn't even, he doesn't know that. Well, I was kind of told, you know. Well, he was told what? I'll tell you what happened. Okay. So, uh, and this is all paralleling this, the the, the Socorro. I was only found out about this really because of the Socorro case that I was investigating. Which you were looking at because of Zamora. 
because of Lonnie Zamora, right. and it was okay. a proximity to that and that t- the time frame and proximity to the base in Socorro is very close. Holloman, White Sands, blah blah blah. Now they were testing missile sites and they were doing all kinds of activity that might have been of interest at, at White Sands. You know, I don't know how far away it is from Trinity site. Probably not that. Excuse me, not that far. New Mexico was a was a hot spot. I'm going to put, by the way, just for people out there, I'm going to put a very, not like a Google Earth one, but a very basic map with like a pinpoint of these places Perfect. you're talking about in the corner so people can see for the visual. Perfect idea. So so I'm in a car. I'm talking to Alan, and he tells me out of the blue that he saw, and this is the guy that produced UFOs, Past, Present, and Future. He's got Jacques Vallée in the movie. He's got all these characters that were all part of the government. I mean, like, something's up. I pull the car over, and I did what I always do when I want to really absorb a story, and that is I close my eyes. And the reason why is because I want the words to create the imagery. I want to know exactly every detail of what he saw. So I pull the car over the side of the road, stop, turn the engine off, had the speaker, I had my phone on speaker, and I said, Alan, tell me exactly what you saw. So he said, okay, there were three discs that were escorted by a military jet, roughly 10, he wasn't sure of the altitude, 10, 12,000 feet. It was guesstimation. And this is what the film footage saw that he claims to have seen, that Paul Shartle at Norton Air Force Base in California on camera admitted that he had it in his possession, he'd seen it, and that it was not of Earth origin in Paul Shartle's opinion. Eminager's opinion as well, but Eminager never saw it. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Alan Sandler did see it. Alan, he doesn't know what it, what it was. He think it could have been some kind of a potentially a, a stage event, whatever. So three discs flying in, okay? Mm-hmm. Two of them peel away, gets over the base, and one of them wobbles to the ground, and he said it was like a leaf, um, like a leaf, like floating down yes. from the sky. The way it, he said it was like, it looked like it was in trouble. But any, anybody, any credible witnesses you ever talk to about a flying saucer, when they're hovering, they're unstable. They kind of, all the witnesses will tell you that it was like a ship floating on a rough sea almost kind of, they do this kind of movement. I've seen footage of a UFO one time that did exactly that. And it's, it looks like it's uh, oscillating. It's, it's, it's got a weight. I don't know. It's just, it's not stable. So anyway, he says it wobbles down to the ground like it was in trouble. But I don't think Alan knew that's how they hover, apparently. So it goes down to the ground, and he goes, you know, James, 
I said, well, hold on a second. Was the camera on sticks? Was it handheld? Was it black and white? Was it color? Mm-hmm. Like what, what, you know, because if, if, if it was on sticks, then they were anticipating it coming. So, cause, Are you also listening for where like, – it feels like when you do this because you want such detail. Are you trying to listen to poke holes on where he's not going to be very sure about something and you can kind of pick up on it? Totally. Yeah. Yeah, I want every – every. I did that – you know, I, <laughs> I did that once with uh, Edgar Mitchell, the Apollo 14, six man to walk on the moon because I wanted to know what it was like to walk on the moon. <laughs> uh, give me every detail, you know, down to the macrometeorites pelting the skin of the crap they were sitting on the surface of the moon. But that's another story. So anyway, he says it lands, and he said, James, just like in a sci-fi movie, this seamless door opens, and out come these beings that had very large noses, slits for mouths, and their eyes were like almost like a vertical slit, like a cat eye, like very, very big. And they had, uh, I'm, just, like a, I'm not saying, I, I need to make this abundantly clear to your audience, I'm not saying what's true or what's not true or if it happened or if it's alien or whatever it is. I'm just telling you what I was told by people who saw it, claimed to have seen it, and that they came out and they met with the base commanders and then they either got into a Jeep or were about to get into a Jeep or do something and then the film footage just cuts. So I was like, what happened? Why didn't you guys get to use that footage? He goes, well... It was one of our flying saucers. Alan was like, it was definitely one of our flying saucers. I was like, so you think that we have flying saucer technology in our possession? He goes, yeah, but it wasn't very good because it couldn't hover very well. It was looked like it was in trouble. I said, one yeah, of, but it, wait, one of ours. That's what he but was he's saying. talking about. He's mentioning the the seeing the creature here too. Yeah. So he, he here's what his thoughts were. His thoughts were that that it was a real flying saucer that was in our possession. Which would indicate that we had that technology in 1972, which I think is bullshit. Okay. Um, uh, and that and that the beans were, you know, made up, dressed up, whatever. You know, he's like, I, I, I can't say for sure. So I'm hammering. So I really stuck my teeth into it. Now, the the point of this is that there is very credible testimony claims that a UFO landed at Holloman Air Force Base. There were a number of witnesses that were on the record. Corral Lorenzo documented this whole thing in the UFO Bulletin. Then there was a film made roughly eight years later that was going to possibly include that footage. Now, Paul Shartle, who showed the footage to Alan Sandler, had men in dark suits show up from wherever and say, you know, don't ever talk, what, what what happened here? This was not supposed to have happened, and took the footage away and debriefed him, and that was the end Sir, of that. Sir, looking a lot, please. Yeah, I'm going to stare right here. Your name is yeah. John Smith. So Alan, so Alan didn't tell Emmenager for 40, whatever it was, years. Wow. Yeah. So that whole aspect of it came out. So now the point of the story is this, okay? Now, if you go online, you hear about secret meetings with President Eisenhower and aliens at a base and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) You hear all this shit. You're like, there's no substance to that story at all. In fact, there's lots of substance to the story I just told you guys. There is incredibly compelling testimony that that event happened and that there's film footage of that event. Now, what exactly it was? Was it first contact? Was it a staged event? Was it our technology? Was it a flying? I, I don't know. But that story 
probably happened, okay? Some aspect of it. The meeting with the aliens and the treaties and all this stuff with President Eisenhower, was that just thrown in there to throw everybody off? In my opinion, absolutely yes. Is there a substance to the story I just shared with you? Absolutely yes. But now, suddenly, the, everything's been, the waters have been muddied. What a can of worms. Who the hell wants to look into that case of our president of the United States making contact and signing treaties with aliens? So it's like, oh, yeah, well, I'm going to steer clear of that, you know. So just giving you one example of obfuscation, it's a perfect thing to do. I mean, what a great. Look, they had, everyone's like, well, if UFOs were real, they'd land on the White House lawn. Well, well, they almost did in 1952, two consecutive weekends in July, okay? They buzzed the Capitol. They buzzed the White House. Yeah. We're going to bookmark that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, very compelling. In fact, we have testimony, never before seen eyewitness testimony of the man who was in the radar room listening to the voices of the of the uh, military jet pilot that was flying at 500 miles an hour through the darkness, the complete pitch black sky, and is surrounded by UFOs over the Capitol in 1952 in July. Holy shit. The man that was in the radar room. It's, it's phenomenal testimony. Phenomenal. Like he's suddenly surrounded by these little... UFOs are surrounding him. What do I do? And they're looking. They could see it on the radar. There's his plane, and there's these UFOs all around him. What do I do? You know, they were given the orders to shoot. That's a whole other thing that we can talk about later. But all right, you know what? Fuck, yeah. fuck a bookmark on this. Hold on a minute. So when you say something like that, and you're like, oh, yeah, no, 100%. There were 1952. There were UFOs in D.C. and whatever. And then people hear something about Eisenhower. I'm just thinking of, like, all the most cynical people out there who are like, what the fuck am I even listening to right now? Let's start with the 52 thing. Yes. You're saying that we had witnesses on the ground in D.C. Were they, did you say they were they were all government-related, or were there also civilians? Let's start. Well, there. there were civilians, too, but they were government-related, like pilots and radar operators and Alt Shop. I think it was like public relations between UFO. You have to look them up, Alt Shop. But Alt Shop was in the radar room in 1952 when... They scrambled right, yeah. military jets that were doing roughly 500 miles an hour through the pitch black. But these UFOs allegedly do like 12,000 miles an hour or something. Well, my point is this. The pilot was terrified. He was flying in pitch black 500 miles an hour over the Capitol. And how many had they sighted again? You said so much there in there. I want to make sure we're following. Five to 12 UFOs. I don't how know how big many. are we talking? They were, they were not... They were like, you know, remember the, they described the Tic Tac? Yeah. They were in that ballpark size. And they were surrounding the they were surrounding his craft, flying at 500 miles an hour. They were just, I mean, they were, you know, appear over here, appear over there. And at first, when we, there was two consecutive weekends in July of 1952. You guys can, anyone can Google it. And at, at, at first, they would, these UFOs would appear, they'd scramble the jets. And then as soon as the jets were got anywhere near them, they were gone. They just poof gone, but at one point the the uh, military jet the pilot uh, went after him and they surrounded his plane. And Al Chop was in the room, and we have testimony on camera for the first time ever because it was part of an archive. This guy went around with a camera and documented all these historical cases. Thank God. Um, 
but he never did anything. He never did anything with it. Uh, Tom Tulian and Tom Project Archive and I had read about this Project Archive, and I was like, "Oh my God!" Footage of Al Chop, footage of this other person. This is unheard of. Nobody's got any of this stuff. And uh, reached out to him, and he's like, "No, nah, I don't know what you're talking about. That's just some weird rumor on on the internet. I don't have any of that stuff." And I was like, "That's kind of weird." So then I was like, "Well, I'm working with Jacques Vallée. And he's like, you're working with Jacques Vallée? I have the footage. I, I have the footage. Goes, yeah, I swear to God. As a matter of fact, he I goes, do. Yeah, I, I was like, so can you get me dinner with Jacques Vallée? I said, I'll fly you out and we'll get together. And so I did. I flew him out, Tom Tulian. We had dinner and he goes, I'll tell you what, I'll make a couple of people. I've got this big archive, but honestly, I've got these other plans for it. I need to actually remember that because that guy's sitting on some crazy stuff. And, and I'll make a couple of select interviews from my catalog available to you. And one of them was Al Chop. And Al Chop describes, because the first time ever in the 1952 case over Washington, D.C., where you have a witness that was in the radar room who heard the pilot of the, the, of the military jet, heard his voice, yeah, saw the radar, saw his jet and all the UFOs around it, and listened to the pilot's voice who was terrified. What do I do? What do I do? They all just said there, stood there in shock. They didn't know what to tell him to do. We sure this wasn't like the Nazis and they just figured some shit out there in World War II and they were left over. So, so here's the thing. Here's my, I got to throw it out there. But here's my point again, because I'm going to get back to obfuscation, okay? So, what happens? Very compelling testimony, very, you know, military pilots, radar confirmation, visual confirmation, air-to-air radar, air-to-ground radar, ground-to-air radar, you know, all this stuff. Really good case. Of course... None of that made it in Project Blue Book, but that's another story. So what happens? They got to figure. They got to do something. It's making headline news. Google it. Anyone can Google UFOs over Washington in 1952. It's behind you. Yeah, on Wikipedia okay. there. Yeah, there we go. So they form the military. The CIA gets involved. They get a panel called the Robertson Panel, intellectual heavyweights, think tank kind of thing, and they're they get together. I don't know what the it was a couple of weeks. We got to figure this problem out. This is a problem, right? We don't have control over airspace. We don't have explanation. They had a big, big, it was the biggest news conference with General John Sanford since the ending of World War II. It was 1952. I don't know. They probably did that in July as well. You can look that one up. General John Sanford gives a press testimony, a press, like, addresses the nation in uniform, a general, basically saying, hey, we got these objects. Could be weather phenomenon, or there are these things that we just can't explain coming from very credible people, and you know it's pretty a big statement from Huge. a military general in 1952. Yes. It's like wow, so they got this problem. So the CIA gets involved. They get the Robertson panel 1953, early on in 1953, and ultimately what they say is, well, you know, lying to the public, so many testimonies. All right, tell you what we're going to do. We're going to uh, we're going to adopt this policy of ridicule, and that's pretty much how this story has remained uh, covered up for all these years. Because ridicule, and it was a policy that was adopted in 1953 by the Robertson panel, and uh, and it stuck. How very CIA of them. Yeah, and so 
that's obfuscation. Like, that's yes. just throw in a bunch of ridicule and jokes and laughs. Like, if you think about a military pilot being surrounded by UFOs, being, you know, seen visually, picked up on radar, all that stuff, gun cam footage, you know, there's nothing this really what, funny about that. Yeah, this, that's pretty intense. But you have the ridicule factor. So now you got this knee jerk reaction. Anytime UFOs are mentioned, it's giggle factor, right? And that's a very effective campaign, and that started in '53. So I think that's another one of the reasons why they have changed the acronym from UFO to UAP, and now it's something else now. But it's unidentified aerial phenomenon. And there are other reasons why? too. Why? Because it had baggage. The word UFO has baggage. And you're saying they don't want it to have baggage. They don't no. want it to have baggage. You don't think that like the intelligence services don't want it to have baggage? Well, it does have baggage, and they don't want that baggage. Yeah. That's definitely one of the reasons why. I promise you, that's one of the reasons why they changed it. I promise you. Also, it's slightly more accurate, but yeah. There are so many things by the... I, I do want to say this, like, for the record. Yeah. There are so many things you're saying in these stories that I'm saying maybe every 15 seconds where I could stop you and ask, like, a clarification question. But yes. there's just too much, so that would ruin the podcast. So for people out there right now who are listening, like, but what about this? What about that? Fair. We'll have some more podcasts in the future, and we can go look at some holes or some stuff yeah. that we had to be like another story for another day. Yes. And we will get to that at some point, like in the future. I just want to make sure, like, people aren't just, you know, some things aren't at least being questioned. But I'm still obviously clarifying on some major things I hear. And so, on this on this last point about the ridicule, hmm. I mean, we we know it's been covered in here in no. probably every podcast in America. Little that, green man that and... that the CIA essentially was very responsible for getting the the term conspiracy theory into popular vocabulary mm. after JFK and all that shit because they wanted people to make everything a conspiracy. And mission accomplished, fellas, if you read the YouTube fucking comments out there, like everyone thinks everything that ever happened yeah. is like, oh my God, it was this, this, or that. And so it then, you, you get to cloak the 1% in the 99 of bullshit and people will, you can just always use the excuse of, well, this one isn't one of the 1%. And so they can do the same thing. And to hear you use that word ridicule for in 1952, nine, 11 years before Kennedy got whacked, right? Yeah. That is, that's very interesting that they were on this topic of the most, I guess, like, uh, no pun intended, otherworldly, yeah. talking about UFOs and stuff, they they would want that to be like, oh, yeah, that crazy asshole at the bar talking about this. Yeah, and let me re remind your audience, it, it, I'm very knowledgeable on what I'm knowledgeable about in terms of the, the cases and the historical perspective. I don't, like, read about stuff and report on it. I go after the first-hand eyewitness testimony, whether it's archival or whether they're still alive, I'm yes. going after it, okay? I want the first-hand eyewitness testimony. That means the world to me. When I look into a specific case, I stick my teeth into it, and I'll, sometimes I'll stick my teeth into it for years. Not like I'm working on that case every day for five years, but on and off. You know, the 1952 case, I wanted the testimony from Al Chop. Well, guess what? We found it. First time ever. I mean, that's just, that's because you have all the newspaper reportings. It's really interesting. You got, you know, 1952, you got Project Blue Book going in full swing. Okay. Yeah. Did they interview the pilot who was surrounded? No. No, they did not. Oh, that's, that's, that's a air. big hole. That's a pretty damn big hole. But now we have testimony from a guy who was in the radar room describing the pilot's voice, like for the first time ever. They didn't interview the bloody 
compile it as part of their public blue book files. Did you say that you knew who? Do we know who he is? I can't remember that. The, I do have his name. I just I, it's in it's in the phenomenon. I've got a photograph of him with his airplane, and I believe his name beneath it. I'm sorry, I don't remember his name, but it okay, was 1952. And and but but he no statements from him. Hello, he's dead now. Of course, he's dead now. Al Chop's dead now. But we. Get... I keep thinking El Chapo every time El he Chapo, says that. I'm waiting El for Chop. like a brick of coke yeah. to come. Al out. Chop <laughs> is doing an interview in the 80s, and he's old then. And uh, and he's smoking a cigarette during the interview. <laughs> the aliens were here, Chico. <laughs> but he was in the Pentagon. He was part of like public relations officer or, or liaison, press re- liaison, something like that. It's explained in the phenomenon, and I got his testimony in the phenomenon. So what, what, I guess what I'm saying is, what what I know is from my own firsthand. I go to on location. Yes. I'm investigating a case in Africa. Guess what? I go to Africa. I'm investigating a landing case in Socorro, New Mexico. I'm going to Socorro, New Mexico. I'm talking to the family. I'm going to the National Archives. I'm talking to the friends. I'm talking to coworkers. I'm really going to stick my case into the, my teeth into this case because I don't believe something. Initially, when I hear something like a landing in Africa, bullshit, right? Uh, a UFO crash in Brazil, bullshit. Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence, period. I don't care what you think of, of uh, Carl Sagan. He said that, and it's true, you know? So in any case, all the stuff I'm sharing with your audience is stuff that I have personally looked into and gotten the testimony, either archival or went and met with the witnesses years later. Or both. And that's how I draw my own conclusions based mm-hmm. on my personal research. I don't just like, like somebody who will remain nameless, but he wrote a book on Socorro and he got the symbol wrong that was on the side of the craft. And I called him up and I was like, hey, you know. Well, how do you know? I said, because I went to the National Archives and I got the document that was written in Dr. Hynek's own handwriting of the case. Then I talked to his wife and I talked to the people around him. And, uh, you know, and that's how I know. You know, he's like, I was like, have you been to Socorro? He's like, no. So uh, you did a yeah. film, you, did a, you wrote an entire book on this case and you never even went to Socorro or the National Archives? Probably a government plant. He's not actually, but I bless his heart. He's a good guy, good guy. But how are you going to write a book on something if you haven't even been to the location? You haven't met with his, you know, friends. His wife said to me, "I'll never forget this. This is a guy who probably looked an alien straight in the eyes, a police officer." And this is not coming from me. This is coming from them. She said, "I don't know what he saw, but he was never the same." And he admits that he made eye contact with this thing. Like it looked, because he was calling out. He was driving in his car because he saw the object coming down as if it was landing and it was in trouble. He didn't know what it was. And then what was the aftermath, the thing they got back in and they left, right? Yeah, they got back in. So what, he, what happened was he was, he was pursuing uh, a speeder through the town of Socorro, New Mexico, April 24th, 1964, about 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And he's chasing after this car. It was convertible. And uh, he sees, like, like something flickering in the sky off to his right. And he knows there's a dynamite, dynamite shack. And he thought maybe some dynamite was going off. He was like, oh, shoot, this could be trouble. So he, like, terminates the chase, and he drives up this hill to get a look. And he sees this, this object down. He gets up the hill, and he looks down in this little arroyo, and he sees this object sitting on the ground with a couple of, like, these small little diminutive children like people is what he's said he's looking at him and he's got his window rolled down and he's in his cop car 
and he's probably a couple hundred feet, 300 feet, maybe a little more away from this object. He's got the window down. He's got his arm out the window, and he's looking out the window with the window down. What am I looking at? He's like, did a car crash, and there's a couple of kids down there? So he's calling out. He's trying to call out, like, hey, you okay? You know, you guys okay? Or Is everything okay down there? And um, I know this because I read the article that was written right after it happened. I was going over it with Mary Zamora, his wife. And uh, and at which point one of them looked him right in the eyes. And it really, like, I don't know. He didn't talk about any level of communication. If he had any communication, whether he did or didn't, I don't know. But he decides he's going to get a closer look at this thing. And in the process of doing so, he had to lose sight of the object for a moment. And I don't know how much you could see that. Like, let's just say, like, the UFO's here. He's on a dirt road here. Okay? And he's looking that way. Mm-hmm. He's going to drive around to here. But in the process of driving from here to here, he loses contact with it just for a little bit. Well, then he gets here. As what, he's, what do you mean he lost contact with he, it? He couldn't see it visually for okay, a second because he had to drive it. around a little hill and some bushes. And, okay. So he lost visual contact with the craft that was sitting on the ground with the two beans on the outside. Okay. So he drives around, and now he's about 50 feet away from this thing, 60 feet. And he gets out of his car, and as he's getting out of the car to get a closer look, to walk towards this thing, he takes about two or three steps. He hears a clunk, and he used to be in the Army, and he said it sounded like that of a hatch of a tank. It was a very, like, clunk, you know. And um, he didn't see them get in it. He didn't see the door close. That's what he heard. He got about three or four strides towards this egg-shaped object that had a, a red symbol on the side of it, which... Again, obfuscation, okay? Well, this was actually one of the good things to have have happened. When the first military officer arrived on the scene from the Army, his name was Richard T. Holder, and Richard Holder asked him if he wouldn't mind to, to say that the symbol was something different than what it was and that the original symbol was never released to the general public. We found it in the, in the archives in Dr. Hynek's own handwriting, and we had a description of it from the initial leaks that came out from the reporters that were on scene before the military got there. And it was an inverted V with, with, um, with three lines. So we weren't sure. So what is that? Wait, so it would be so like, like an that? A, basically, like this. With three lines through it? Yeah, with three lines. So we had thought that maybe it was a line here, a line here, and a line here. Like a, but, pi- like a pyramid. Yeah, but as it turns out, we found out for the first time, and I took this guy, Ray Stanford, who wrote the book on it, uh, Socorro Saucer in a Pentagon Pantry. You could look that up too, and uh, and and Ray had been fighting the general public and the UFO community for fifty years. When I took him to the National Archives, and he was reluctant to want to go with me, we're not going to find anything. Nothing new. I said, "Well, if you have that attitude, we're not going to find anything." I've researched. I said, "Let's go to the National Archives." So we go there, and lo and behold, I won't bore your audience with how it came about, but we got the original Project Blue Book files from that case, and they were original, not. Photocopies, not microfilm, original copies, original drawings. And we found the letter from Dr. Jalen Heideck, who investigated the case for the United States Air Force of an inverted V and three lines. And what it was... And you verified it was his handwriting. Oh, 100%. Yeah. That was one right out of the Air Force files. It's an inverted V. I could draw it for your audience, but it's a slit here. One, one here, one here, one here, one here, and then one on top. Inverted V. I've got, I think I have, it's on the side of the craft in the film. I'll do a shitty yeah, drawing and put it in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> That's a little bit dangerously close to so, the pyramid angle, though. What, I don't what, know. What Richard Holder did was he got, uh, actually it made sense, 
it made sense. He got um, Lonnie to lie and say that it was something else, like a, a like a like a U shaped thing with a line here and an arrow. Why? Because if there were any copycat people that wanted to be in the limelight that said I saw the same thing, and yes, that was a symbol on the side, then they'd immediately be able to identify a hoaxer. And that's why they did. So it was smart. Very smart. Yeah, it was smart. So the truth about that never came out. But but um, but it, you know, and it's funny actually. Again, there it was in the documentary. I did. God, this is great. You know what? I'll talk about this right now because this is pretty intense. If you and and you know what? I know I said this earlier. By the way, I just want you to be totally free flowing. I had said once or twice early in the podcast, we're going to get to a moment of contact. Yeah. When I have a guest who's riding on some shit, we're yeah. riding on so some I've shit never, and the plans are out the window. I've so never, keep going. We'll get there eventually. I've never gone public with this because... Okay, so... Oh, that's over. Let's yeah. go. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let me give you guys the truncated version because it's kind of cool. I interviewed... And when I tell you I stick my teeth into a case, I stuck my teeth into a case. Let me, let me take a sip of water. I... Uh, Talk to this guy, Christopher O'Brien. He's like, you're doing a document, you know, you're going to cover the Socorro, New Mexico case. And I remind your audience, it's probably only going to be eight to ten minutes max in an hour and a half or an hour and 40 minute film. But I want to get it right. And I want to get every aspect of it right. So I flew to the East Coast. I met with this guy, Ray Ray Stanford, who wrote the book, Socorro Saucer, Pentagon Pantry, talking about the case. Apparently he was there within a week or so of it, saw the imprints, all this stuff. And in his book, Ray is talking about metal shavings from the landing gear of the craft that were that were uh, recovered at the site. And Ray Stanford actually had those in his possession. Now, are they metal or metal were, they met, uh, were they metal appearing? Because it could be some element we don't know about. So here's what he how he explained it to me. He said that, and I wasn't going to. In fact, I don't. I didn't even include this in the phenomenon. I didn't. So. <laughs> Um, and I had the rocks. Uh, Ray Stanford showed me the rocks. What happened, the landing gear came down, and this thing was very, very heavy, and it broke this rock in half. It was a very hard rock, and it had a razor-sharp edge. And the landing gear came down and hit that razor-sharp edge of the of the freshly broken rock, and it peeled like a shaving, very thin shaving, like almost like when they make drinks and they get the orange and they get the little yeah. thing out and make those. Yeah. He said it was like that. Metal shavings. And... Um, he got those. He dropped one of them in the tall grass, never found it. The other one went to a lab um, at NASA, and they determined that they were uh, magnesium isotopes not found on the, in the U.S., not found in the world, something like this. Is this what you had the Stanford doctor look at? No. Different thing? Yes. Because he was talking about isotopes. No? Yes. I'm not crazy? Yeah, no, you're not crazy. Okay. Right. Yeah, but that was a different thing. Okay. So uh, this is Ray Stanford's story to me. And he's like, you know, I took these in. He's like, I had them in my hands. And he took one, one he dropped in tall, tall grass and never, I was like, you dropped it in tall grass and you never recovered? He goes, I looked, I was on my hands and knees for hours. I don't know what happened. He was devastated. Talking about it like 40 years later, he was devastated. So inconvenient. God damn. So he takes the other one to a lab at NASA and the initial findings are astronomical. Like he's blown away and he's like, oh my God. And then they're, and then they're gone. And he was like, well, what do you mean they're gone? Well, we had to destroy him in the process of, you know. So he was like, somebody stepped in, whatever. He said, my biggest regret was I trusted, you know. Anyway, so that's so I heard about that, but I didn't cover it in the film. So 
I'm in the field, I'm in Socorro, New Mexico, and I'm interviewing his coworker. Now his coworker worked out the dump site. Now Lonnie Zamora was a police officer, but because of the attention and the ridicule that he got, it was putting too much pressure on him, the town, his position as a police officer. Oh, you're the guy that, you know, sees, oh, I was speeding. Oh yeah, coming from the guy who sees little green men, like, you know, that kind of thing. So he quit his job and he got a, he quit being a police officer and he got a job working at the dump site. And he wanted to be at the dump site because he was away from everybody else. He didn't have to see anybody else, talk to anybody else. And he worked with this guy who I have on camera. I have this, everything I'm about to tell you I have on camera. None of it's been released. So I'm doing the interview and I want to get his description of the beans because that was the aspect of the, of the encounter that was so downplayed because the, the Air Force wanted him to really... Like, don't talk about the aliens that you saw. Don't talk about the beans. That's much more difficult to explain. Anyway, so I, I, this guy did not want to meet with me. Oh, my gosh. We found him, and I took his wife, Mary, out there. We're like, you know, got her involved to call. And You have a gun so, to her head? Yeah. <laughs> I got, I got, and she didn't want to meet with either. The whole thing took a long time. This is a tight You get a community. lot of people to meet with they you. They didn't want not, to meet with they you. They did not want to get a, a, an outsider in in this community. I'm telling you, it was, it took time. And I had people that worked with me on the inside that were, anyway, reluctantly, we managed to get him to, in his yard to, to go on camera. He's talking about, he said, you know, James, he said, um, I worked with Lonnie, what was it, 28 years, 30 years, 35 years, a long time. Ever since he left the police force in 1964, and he, I think he retired in like 2003 or something like this, and he died in 2008. So he said, I never talked to him about the alien encounter. And at the end of 30 years or 28 years, whatever it was, whatever period he was, he was at the, uh, the dump site. Uh, Lonnie came to him when he was retiring. He said, you offered me an opportunity. I'm so grateful. I want to thank you so much for the employment and this. And I got to work here. And and his buddy goes, yeah, I just would like one thing. And Lonnie knew immediately what he was talking about. He goes, okay, I'll tell you. So then he tells him. And, of course, he shared that with me. So in the process of this, he said, oh, yeah, real nonchalant. Oh, yeah, Lonnie still has metal shavings. I said, uh, what? He goes, oh, yeah, Lonnie, Lonnie said he had the metal shavings. <laughs> I said, uh, metal shavings, and I immediately thought of Ray Stanford at the site who found metal shavings himself, and Lonnie, had, I don't know how much detail you guys want me to go into here, but Lonnie All had, of it. Okay, so... So Lonnie, Ray Stanford, and Dr. Jalen Hynek are out at the site. Maybe about a week, a few days after it happened. And Dr. Hynek was a debunker at this point. Now, this was a, this was a case that was a turning point for him individually, right? But still, he's working with the Air Force. So he's like, they're trying to get him to downplay they're interrogating Lonnie about the beans, what they look like, but publicly they're talking about clothes sheets hanging on a clothesline, just some complete nonsense. Mm. So, so Ray doesn't Ray doesn't trust 
Dr. Hynek, raise independent, I think, I'm not sure what organization he was with at the time, but it was a private in, in, you know, organization. So Ray is investigating the case and Dr. Hynek is investigating the case. They're out there at the site. It was dusk. And Lonnie points out the fact that, hey, you might want to, there's some, some kind of things down here and sees that there are metal shavings and Hynek somehow doesn't pick up on this and he leaves and Ray goes back later with a flashlight and he gets these metal shavings. Either with a flashlight that night or the very, I'm sure he went with a flashlight that night. So he gets these metal shavings. So I'm thinking back, this guy, so Lonnie is the one that pointed this out. So Lonnie probably kept some of the metal shavings himself. Okay, that's what he said. And you made it sound like when you were hearing this, he was still alive. He wasn't, Lonnie was dead. He was already, he Okay, because it sounded different when you said it. I was confused because I yeah, knew you had sorry. said he was dead and you didn't so, get the interview. Him, yeah, but. Well, well, what happened was is that that uh, that uh, Lonnie gave the account to his coworker at the dump site at the end of his career there. Right. And the guy said, the only thing I want out of it is your alien story, right? So he gives him yes. the story and then he says, by the way, I still have some metal, some shavings of, of the landing, from the landing gear. Right. So I'm like, Oh my gosh, this is why on earth would this guy make this up? It makes sense. It corresponds to to Ray's story and the metal shavings. So I go back to Mary's house, Lonnie's wife, who's obviously still alive. And I said, Mary, um, how did Lonnie die? Oh, it was really sudden. He wasn't feeling well and he he <laughs> sat down on the bed and I went and got a, got a glass of water. I came back, he was gone. So I said to myself, okay. How old was he? Don't know. He would have, I don't he know. He wasn't like 85. No, then. no. no. Was, he wasn't Probably, I, I, If I had to guess, I would say he's in the 70s, but I don't, I'm not sure. Uh, okay. In any case, well, he was like probably 33 or something in 64 or so, and he died in 2008. Maybe he was younger than that. I'm not sure. Anyway, okay. getting back to the story. So I tell Mary, Mary, I think there might be artifacts from a UFO in your house. <laughs> And uh, she said, well, what do you mean? And I, I told her the story. I said, look, I heard about it from this guy. I heard about it from that guy. Well, Lonnie always said that, that Ray Stanford wrote the book on the case. He's the only one that got it right. And in the book, Ray talks about these metal shavings. Now the guy that he worked, your husband worked with for 20, 30 years at the dump site is saying the same thing that Lonnie told him directly. Why on earth would this guy make that up? This guy did not come looking for me. I tracked him down and with the help of his family, begged and pleaded and ultimately got him to go on camera. And he goes, oh, yeah, and Lonnie told me about these metal shavings. I said, well, what did he say he was going to do with these metal shavings? He said, nothing, just going to keep them, not going <laughs> to show them to anybody, just going to keep them. So I'm all, those metal shavings are back at the house. He told his coworker that he had them. So I rented Mary's house, and Mary was probably in her 80s. I said, Mary, I'd, I'd like to take your house over for a couple of weeks if you don't mind. <laughs> and uh, she's like, well, what's going on? And I told her. I Get the like, fuck out. Yeah, we, got some, <laughs> we potentially got some metal shavings in there. And there was like garages and little outhouses and like, you know, lots of little apartments. Dude, I took the ceiling compartments apart. I took the floors. I mean, I got a, I got a couple of people and I tore that place. He had this one area. She was, let you do this? She did. I turned that place upside down looking for these metal shavings. Nothing. What I did find was a black duffel bag of letters. And most of them were open. Some of them were unopened. Most of them were open but never replied to. 
And I'm talking, dude, it was a big bag of letters. And this is from the 60s and 70s and 80s. And these letters, some in some cases, had uh, references to photographs that were taken. You know, please find and close these you know, letters. And I found these letters like these are like, God, Lonnie didn't respond to any of these people. He had this big black duffel bag filled with letters. Well, I featured some of them. I was going to say, you read these, right? I did a couple, just a couple of them. On the, there were hundreds. On the documentary. And there were people, and, and, and Lonnie would open them up, and he, he, he kept newspaper clippings. He kept letters from other people he got. He never responded to any of them. He never went on the speaking tour. He never. Did. He was invited to England. He was invited all over the place. And made Mar- no money on it. Made no money on it. Never wanted to really. Did it. just a couple of interviews. That was it. And he really downplayed later on in life. Really downplayed. And I also talked to this guy Paul Harden, who was the local reporter in 2008 in in Socorro, New Mexico, and. Uh, Paul, for the records, wanted to do one final interview with, with Lonnie Zamora. He was getting on in age, just to, for the record. And and Lonnie said, don't ask me about the creatures. And he said, okay. And so he did the interview. So that aspect, again, was downplayed. And so Lonnie rarely talked about the beans. Very rare. Like, there was probably about an hour where the uh, that aspect of the encounter came out before Richard Holder arrived on the scene and the poor Project Blue Book and the FBI all got involved. And so, uh, um, yeah, so, uh, um, so I turned her house upside down and you get all, and I find the letters, I find the very, uh, handcuffs that he had with him that he was wearing that during the the encounter, which I actually, he's wearing handcuffs, which I got those handcuffs. Mary gave them to me. Are we sure he wasn't on mushrooms? (laughs) He was on duty in in uniform. So I mean, that's never stopped a few guys before. I'm just saying. (laughs) And. There was physical evidence that corresponded directly with the eyewitness testimonies. One of the best cases, part of Project Blue Book Files, uh, it was one of the best, most well-documented close encounters of the third kind in U.S. history. Yeah. So, um, so I turned her house upside down. <sighs> Couldn't get it. Couldn't there get were the metal small shavings. shavings. It could have been anywhere. I remember I was in the shop. I was in the shop, and there was so many things and places it could have been. He could have had it buried out in the yard. I don't know. And I was like, Be out God, there with if the I metal could detector. Have, if I could have just, if I could have just interviewed him while he was still alive, I might have yeah. gotten those. Ah. And that, you know what? Uh, I, uh, where your head goes when you so watch when you watch any interview that you do or other people do with people who have supposedly seen ufos or seen aliens everyone's looking for the catch like the oh we're gonna find out they're crazy or we're gonna find out you know they're they're monetizing this whole thing or something and of course when you hear someone did monetize it immediately go okay Mm -hmm. we like that but i I do wonder sometimes if not not even drug related like i joke about but just in general like if people kind of leave themselves for a minute and really convince themselves that they saw something because what we do have to say here and this is this doesn't have to do with aliens this has to do with just human nature and psychological fact one of the most difficult and controversial things in the justice system for example is eyewitness testimony because there are people who won't get up there and lie but they will not tell the truth because they 
think they saw something where it was re-anchored in their head that they saw it this way. We even see it in interrogations where cops make someone believe they actually did a crime when they didn't. There's there's a weird loop that happens with people where you know we say something to ourselves or like think we saw something but weren't sure and maybe we never did. And I would say once again – like I pointed out earlier, when you hear all these people from all these different places over all these years pre-internet describing and drawing the same thing, that's where it starts to go, okay, there's something to that. It's not like you know the person in Australia in 1966 is talking with the kid in Zimbabwe in 94 or something like that. Or are they? I don't know. But with some of the people you talk to, maybe the ones who don't draw out exactly what they saw or or who you didn't – who you only got to review archives. Maybe you didn't even talk to them. Do you ever find yourself wondering if this person was just looking for meaning in their life and it was, or or they actually think they saw something, but they really didn't? It, it might have been like a fucking shooting star or something like that. Couple couple things. One, the better the witness, the less likely they are to want to come forward. I go after witnesses very, very seldomly any witness approach me. When I go after a case, I will track witnesses down, and sometimes it takes years years to get them to come forward with moment of contact. Some of those witnesses that we got, we massage those witnesses for 15 years, 10 years, five years, seven years. Oil or <laughs> just, to... I like fucking with people. We have fun in here. Uh, yeah. Uh, more, you know, happy ending. <laughs> hey, whatever we're willing to do in our relentless pursuit of truth here. No, but my point is, is that the better the witness, the less likely they are to want to come forward willingly. Yeah. Okay? Two, we're dealing with one of two things, and this is just the bottom line. There's no question that there are these objects of unknown origin whizzing around, incredibly well-documented, photographed, radar, visual, all the above, everything except have your hands on it, you got photographic evidence, you got radar evidence, you got visual evidence, multiple eyewitness testimony, broad daylight, blah, blah, blah. Dating back to the 40s. Some say a lot further than that. But anyway, modern day UFO waves. Those are real. They display a technology that is light years advanced from anything that we even have today. They've got no wings, no tail, no visible means of propulsion. They have the ability to hover to accelerate from the standstill to out of sight in the blink of an eye, right angle turns at high speed. They don't make a sonic boom. They don't make any wake, air disturbance, and almost no noise. Sometimes we'll report like a slight humming or a buzzing. That's it. So there are two choice, two options. One, we're not alone. Or two, someone, some foreign power or the United States has been in possession of revolutionary technology light years advanced from what we see today for over 75 years. So, Russia, China, now what seems more likely? That we're not alone or that someone's been in possession of this technology? And if you look back at the historical records, and we show some of that in the phenomenon, this stuff, and then of course you've got the aspects that's not even mentioned in all today's reports that are going on, that the United States Air Force categorized the three different types of sightings. Yeah, like you laid out. Yep. Yeah, close encounter of the third kind. Mm -hmm. Beings associated. Well, guess what? If there are beings associated and they don't look like us with a craft that's displaying this kind of technology, plus you got the beings that don't look anything human-like, 
that's a pretty good indication that we're not alone, right? So, so it's, it's, it's one or the other. So two, two things here. I, w- I want to get your thoughts on these. First is, I am at a point, and really, Alessi here is responsible for getting me really into aliens mm-hmm. when he went and did the stuff with you and was telling me all about it. I'd always like thought about it, but never. Yeah. I was never yeah. one of these guys. I was a big YouTube documentary guy, not on aliens, mm-hmm. right? And now I'm, I'm thinking about it a lot more, and it actually, maybe there's a part of it that's like, there's an explanation for some things now in my head and I wonder if that's what it is. And so I'm, I'm, I'm all in on it, but you look at, at, at how people have gotten to this point with, you know, putting all these sightings together like you did and trying to, to figure out what's behind it to the people that immediately dismiss all this, even after hearing some of it, if they have, the one thing I'd say is I actually think it's kind of narcissistic for us on Earth as humankind to actually think that out in the galaxy that we do not know how big it is. It could be endless, like literally endless. It could be simulations, whatever. To think that we are the only intelligent life form. I'm not talking about you know the nine planets and stuff in our solar system i'm talking all the way through the whole galaxy to think that we are the only intelligent life form that's ever existed in our very short human history in the context of time right like a long life to us is 100 years that's nothing you know the humans have been around for there's arguments over that but not that long it 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 seems to me very selfish to assume that that could be true especially given the fact you look at the exponential curve of technology and how we've developed it over time and it's still as of this moment exponential there's they say at some point that'll end but who knows who knows when that is who's to say that other galaxies haven't figured out those theories of relativity the the speed of light the changing of time all these different things that we have and to say nothing of these mysterious crafts that they allegedly have and the telepathy and, and the things like just look at simulate our own world simulate that guy talking about having us elon musk on my wall talking about having us talk to each other with Neuralink without opening our mouths and how that could just be like the earliest you know moses in the bible type discovery that some fucking civilization had 10 billion years ago yeah it's like, crazy we're, we're cyborgs already it was like what do you mean it's like you know look at your phones basically yes. all you gotta do is attach it we're already looking for but let me say and i'll so, get to the second thing but saying, i want you to respond to this first yeah well so you think about it this way nobody thinks we're alone in the universe that's that's long Oh, no one. I could find you a few people. Oh, yeah. Well, the vast majority of the scientific community all confirm there's a consensus. There's no way we could be possibly alone. The, the, the likelihood or probability of other life, look, we, we exist uh, out there, is just a 100%. Yes. It's pretty much, that's the overwhelming majority of scientific perspective, views, whatever. The question is, is it coming here? And then... I hear people like Neil deGrasse Tyson, which I have tremendous respect <laughs> for. Words out of my mouth. Yeah, <laughs> I hear. Yeah, I hear him talk about this, and I'm like, you, you are one of the brightest people. I, uh, but you are being really stupid when it comes to this whole thing. He's like, why would they be what? interested in us? Well, or something. Yeah. Well, but 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 you have to ask yourself. Okay, let's just say, let's just suspend judgment and all imagine for a moment that there was a highly advanced extraterrestrial race or whatever. Let's just, again, this is hypothetical. Okay, let's mm-hmm. suspend judgment. Mm-hmm. What if 
Earth was under some sort of surveillance or observation, okay? But overt contact wasn't made for whatever reason. I don't know. One can speculate until you're blue in the face, but whatever. So we're under some sort of observation by a highly advanced extraterrestrial civilization, okay? What evidence might we have of that if it were true? Possibly... Maybe some photographic, maybe some periodically people get a, people see it, they slip up, who knows? You know, photograph it, maybe they pick it up on radar as our technology advances over the last 75 years, more radar data, more sensors, more abilities to pick these things up. The fact that maybe we are under someone's watch. I'm just saying, yeah. if it were true and if that were, what evidence might we have? Well, guess what? We have all of that evidence. That's... That's that's irrefutable. I mean, it's the Air Force even admits it. Even now, the intelligence community telling that UFOs are real. We just don't know what they are. Well, you hear the same stories. That's why I start off in the phenomenon with an encounter with a flying saucer back in 1955 by a colonel in the United States Air Force. What was his a, name again? Colonel William T. Coleman. Yeah. I rented a B-25 bomber for World War II bomber for that site, sighting because it's so significant. And I juxtaposed that encounter in 1955 with a pilot with an with a you know world war ii pilot yeah. air force colonel ran head of project blue book for a while up against david fravor in 2004 flying the, the state-of-the-art navy uh fighter jet right and you listen to the both of them talking about this observed technology and the parallels are uncanny okay how it you know appears here boom it's over there takes off blink of an eye like so this this has been well documented, okay? Why don't they make themselves overtly known? Why don't they land on the White House lawn? Why? All they'd have to do is hover over the Macy's Day Parade. Guess what, guys? Game over. Tens of thousands of witnesses, cameras everywhere. They don't do that. They've done some pretty remarkable things. Like if you look at 1997, the Phoenix Lights. That craft was over a mile or two miles across. I even interviewed the governor of Arizona. Five Symington saw it. It was witnessed by tens of thousands of people across the state of Arizona on March 13th, 1997, from about 5 o'clock to 7 o'clock in the evening. Everyone was out into the night sky trying to get a glimpse of the Hillbob Comet. That's a pretty bold move. They didn't land, but there were lots of people that I interviewed that watched this that looked like a floating city. Wow. That was a mass sighting, very compelling. That's probably one of the most bold, or what's the word I'm looking for, you know, in terms of exposing themselves potentially. Yeah, overt. Overt attempts to, you know. Who's, so, who's to, by the way, who's to say yeah. that they don't have the ability to simulate what's going to happen and see it, or, I don't know, see the future of what's going to happen and therefore be able to know if they do something like even a little more overt, that there will be enough doubt that no one will believe it. Or yeah. not enough people will have cameras out right when it's happening. I'll give you another example. This is a, I, I'm always fascinated by this. I just really, I think about it all the time. Okay, I'm not really big on abduction, alleged abduction cases, okay? However, just because I haven't really, A, it seems like a slippery slope. What kind of evidence do we have? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, 
Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We just have eyewitness testimony. We don't have any like government data that I know of that mm-hmm. could support these you know stories. However, there are a handful of these reports, of these cases, that I find incredibly compelling. One of which is Travis Walton. Okay. okay. Tell people about this guy who aren't familiar with Snowflake, that Arizona, 1975. I believe it was 75. You can correct me on that one. Great mustache. Yeah, great guy's mustache. Guy's got a strong mustache. Yeah, and they, there was a bunch of lumberjacks out in, out in uh, Snowflake, Arizona. Uh, they had, they were under government contract. They were working late. They were trying to get this job done. They, I think they were clearing trees for fire hazards, stuff like that. And they worked after hours and I, the sun was down and they were like on a dirt road. And it was one of those trucks that had four doors that they had seven people in the truck. I think it was like three in the front and four in the back. And, uh, they see what they thought initially was a fire. And uh, they were like, damn, there's like a fire. There's a really bright light. There's a movie made about it by a guy named uh, Tracy Torme. I think he wrote it and produced it, directed it. No, he didn't direct it. Fire in the Sky? Fire in the Sky. And uh, they see what they thought was a fire in the sky. And as they got closer, they realized it was no fire. It was this. I talked to a lot of the witnesses. Uh, uh, one of the witnesses said to me, and it was not Travis. Travis will talk about it as well. He actually put it on a piece of paper he, he scribbled it for me on a all right so i'll tell you I'll get to that in a second so he said uh one of the witnesses said to me and he was working at a, like a walmart and i went and interrupted him because i just had to talk to as, as many of the other witnesses there were seven guys and i think two or three of them have died since uh. so i talked to him and he goes james have you have you ever seen like like a like a brand new corvette <laughs> right and i'm like where is this going you ever seen like a brand new, it's brand new on the showroom floor? I was like, yeah. Goes, it was better than that. <laughs> <laughs> it was more perfect. You know, and, he, and then he's just describing this thing and I could see it in his eyes. He was reliving this experience. Like, wow. Like Carlos de Souza at the crash site and moment of contact. Like you could just see it. We're it's like you, th- their eyes are open, but they're just like, like I, he was reliving it. And he was like, it was like a brand new. I was like, wow. So anyway, uh, they Travis, seven guys, Travis goes to get out of the of the truck and wants to run towards this thing. It's lower than treetop. It's right there. You get hit it with a rock. And Travis jumps out of the truck, and all the guys were like, stop it, Travis. What are you doing? Get back in the car. And Travis wanted to, he was like, I want to, I want to get closer to this thing. He's running towards it against the will of everybody in the truck. They're all screaming at him, like, the hell are you doing? And it starts making a spooling up, like it's spooling up, like it's preparing to do something. It's like, like some kind of sound is spooling up, they all said. Travis suddenly is getting, he thought that he was going to start running towards this thing and it was going to just take off. It didn't do that. It was making a spooling up sound, but he was getting like uncomfortably close to this thing. At which point it starts to make this spooling up sound. Travis gets cover behind a, a a fallen tree, like a log on the ground. He he 
he braces himself. He gets down low and he's kind of hovering. And then he decides, he's like, holy shit, this thing is doing something. And like this. And he's like, and they're screaming at him, get back over here, get over here. <laughs> so he gets up from behind the log to make a run for the truck. And some kind of like force field hits him, knocks him like a raggedy and doll, dude. He flies like uh, 60 feet back. He looks like a raggedy and doll. Raggedy. Head? Don't know. I'm not, but he flew back, backwards. Flew back like a raggedy andal is how they described it. They hit the guy. The driver hits the gas pedal, leaves Travis for dead. <laughs> leaves Great Travis friend. for dead. Yeah, I know. He's, uh, <laughs> Fuck he's, off, he's Travis. Thinking, he's thinking, we're next. He hits the gas pedal. They get like um, maybe a half a mile or a mile down the road, and they're screaming and arguing in the car. And the driver's like, I have got to go back. I cannot leave him out there. I, we, we have to go back. We're getting out. We, we're not going to go back. You know, don't go back. So he says, well, I'm going back. I don't care what you guys do. You guys can stay here for all I care. I'm going back. So they all decided, look, we're better off sticking together. So let's stick together. So they stayed in the truck. They went back. UFO gone. Travis gone. So now these guys are going down to the authorities, right? Six of them because, you know, I guess there were seven in all. Travis is gone. So like to report six. an alien abduction? Exactly. Like, so they go down to the authorities and they tell them what happened. Of course, the Stick them in the drunk tank. <laughs> yeah. They tell them what happened and they're all under pretty much suspicion of murder. So now it's a murder case. They killed. The, oh, they went right there. That they absolutely. So they yeah. get they get the dogs to go find the body. They're like, "You killed him. You 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 buried him. We're all going to go find him." So they start this intensive manhunt. Excuse me. I don't know how many days it goes on for, but days. Travis, five days later, six days later, reappears. He's on the outskirts of town. He's not where he was picked up. He's on the outskirts of town. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this story is because this is something that intrigued me and puzzles me. And this, you look at what these, the phenomenon does, but you also look at what the phenomenon doesn't do. If they had dropped him off in downtown, well, back up. If they had dropped Travis off, and I've been there twice. We're talking in the middle of nowhere. They would have dropped Travis off where they picked him up. He would have died. He would have never made it back alive. Why? It's too far. It's the middle of nowhere. Freezing cold. There's At nothing night. out there. There's not Dude, one person out there. Super, not one person. Okay, I've been there twice. I'm speaking from being there. And it's cold you, in November cold. in Arizona. He was in the middle of nowhere. Trust me, he would not have made it back. He okay. was already weak. Okay. So he gets dropped off on the outskirts of town now. If they would have dropped him off where they picked him up, he wouldn't, he wouldn't have made it. Likelihood, chances are he would not have made it. Okay, I don't even know how many days he'd been without food. He was weak. And, uh, but he doesn't get dropped off in town because if they dropped him off in town, he would have, the likelihood of them being seen, they would have exposed themselves. They dropped him off in, a, in an area that was like kind of down in a valley, came down, and the first thing that he remembers, he woke up, he was in the on the ground and he looked up and he saw the craft taking off above him and it was right near a phone booth and he makes the call and all the rest is history. But I always thought to myself, they cared about his well-being. Maybe it wasn't an abduction. Maybe it was them. Maybe he got exposed to the force field of the propulsion of that craft and that knocked him back like a raggedy end all and it stopped his heart. They wanted to be like, you good? Yeah, so they took yeah. him aboard and they brought him back to life and then they dropped him off on the outskirts. So maybe 
they accidentally hurt. Maybe he got too close and they didn't like shoot a ray beam and try to kill him. Because he doesn't remember. Uh, fill yeah. me in on this again. This he was does. a while ago. I heard his podcast a couple of years ago. He doesn't remember anything that happened up there. He does remember about five minutes. And what is what is he what does he say he saw? Uh, he uh, there's a movie about it called Fire in the Sky. I talked about that earlier, yeah. but yeah. but it's not accurate. It's not it's, unfortunately it's accurate up to the point in which he goes aboard the craft, allegedly. Uh, he wakes up on blurry eyed on a uh, stainless steel table. This is from his mouth to my ears. He wakes up on a stainless steel table and he's got these, it's blurry and he's on his back and he's just, his eyes are blurry and you see this like, like creatures thing, people, does not know what he's looking at. It's like, and he's slowly regaining his consciousness and he sees these little uh, quintessential alien beings, the greys, I guess the big almond shaped eyes and big heads and he's, absolutely terrified he jumps up off the table he's feeling weak he grabs some kind of instrument or something that he has and he's using it as a weapon and he said he hit one of them as he swiped his hand away and he said he couldn't believe how light it was like he he thought it would be more mass to it but it was kind of light the gym (laughs) yeah and uh and he took a very defensive very defensive stance against it he was terrified and they left they left the room and they went to the right and he went, he exited the room and he went to the left. And he said that if you can imagine like a, like the, the, it was a, it was a tunnel, like a long corridor, like a hallway, but it was all one sheet of like a polished aluminum, but no rivets, no welding seam, all smooth, like one, all one piece. And he said it was hard to breathe. And that his shoulders were rubbing up against both sides of this thing. It was like, it was small. And he was making his way through and he, down this hallway and he looked off to the left and he saw an opening and he saw a chair in a big kind of empty room with all kind of these controls on it. And I guess he sat in the chair and he started pushing the buttons thinking, how can I get out of here? And all of a sudden a big um, uh, three-dimensional field appeared, star chart appeared and things were moving around, and he thought, oh, my God, maybe I'm on a spaceship, and I'm going to crash this thing. I don't know what I'm doing. And just then, two uh, human-looking people walk in with these tight-fitting suits on, and they had glass bubbles over their faces. Over Human-looking. Human-looking. They said they were perfect. It's like, not like the other... No, and he goes, thank God you're here to help me. Like, Jesus. And he's looking at these tight-fitting suits. How tall were they? Six feet, five, six feet. I mean, they were human-looking. And he said they were perfectly beautiful. And the man, they were looked like they were, I don't know, 25, 30 years old. Man. Perfect. They were just gorgeous. A man and a woman. And I said, you know, it was, it was, no question it was a woman. And he was talking to them. Thank God you're here. Oh, my God, you're here to save me. You know, And they, weren't say, they didn't say anything to him. They didn't respond and say anything. And they took him. And they took him out of the room. And they escorted him down the hallway and then he came out by force or like they uh, said you're coming with me yeah no yeah, didn't okay. like you know no it was not non-negotiable took him out and uh he said he came down like a like a ramp out of whatever he was in like a, like if he was in a small spacecraft he said that the small spacecraft um was either in a hangar or it was in the belly of a massive and I said what do you mean he goes well there were lots of different sizes of of landed disc-shaped UFOs. Some of them were smaller, some of them were quite big, and it was either a massive hangar 
like massive hangar on a planet somewhere, or it was a massive hangar inside the belly of a big spaceship. He didn't know. He was just describing what he saw. And they escorted him out. They walked him out. And then I think, I think it was another one person that took a, like a cloth or some kind of chemical thing and tried to put it over. He said he put up a fight and tried to stop oh, whatever they were doing. Okay. Yeah, put yeah. that cloth over yeah. and then and, and he was trying to fight it. Like he was like, are they trying to kill me? What are they doing? Like he was trying to fight it because I was so weak and feeble. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't defend myself. And, and then he woke up and the thing was taken off and five days had gone by. Are we yeah. sure he didn't like die and like he's so like all, kicking Muhammad or Jesus yeah. or some shit? And they're like, send well, him back. <laughs> yeah. So all the guys go down into into Snowflake, Arizona, in nineteen seventy. I think it's seventy five. I'm sorry, I don't have the exact date. It was seventy five. Seventy five. It was seventy five. Okay. November fifth, seventy five. Okay. So you know, and he, and they tell the authorities like you know, and they're nobody believed them. Nobody believed them. Of course they didn't believe them. I mean, it's nineteen seventy five. Yeah. So uh, they all are under the suspicion of, of homicide, and this is a homicide case, and they started an intensive manhunt for five days. They got dogs, helicopters, it's making world news, all this stuff, you know, and they all maintained that story, you know. Anyway. So- I swear, like, I swear I saw that, po- I remember that. Rogan had him on, I think shortly after he had you Rogan on, but asked- I must have been paying no attention, because some of that sounded new as hell to me no, when you were saying that. Rogan, I know, yeah, well... I did my eyes closed thing thing with 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 him, and I know him quite well. And I went there twice to the to the takeoff to the site. And you remember in moment of contact when we took the crash witness back to the site. Yeah. Remember how he behaves when he finds it. Oh, it's we're gonna get to that. In I saw the look on Travis Walton's face when we took him to that site for the first time in years. The way he Who got it. I went with a whole with a national tele, National Geographic crew. It was a stupid, stupid TV show that I did. I have no one to blame but myself. But whatever. Um, they were like, we're gonna, you know, kind of dumb this down a little bit for a much younger audience. And I was like, kind of went along with it. Whatever. That's that's no, another story altogether. But in any case, I went to the site in the winter. God, it might have been November, but in any case, it was in the winter. There was snow, and Travis just got this like blinder on. And he was looking at the exact location where the where the UFO was, and uh, you could yell at him all you want, and he was, uh, uh, and he was just running out there, and you know Travis like uh, uh, and he was just just the trauma of it all. Just uh, I could see, I was wow, I was so impressed, was just so deeply. So moved you by believe it. that he believes this, no matter every what. single one of those guys I talked to all yeah. saw it happen. You think they're going to go into town and tell them their friend was abducted by a flying saucer? Yes. Like that's just stu- <laughs> no one in their right mind is going to believe that. I could see I could see a few like oh, 21, know, 22 year olds trying to get And then he disappears for 5 days and exhausted. The other thing is one of them hated him. One of them actually got in a fight with him the other day. I'm pretty sure they oh, were yeah. at the actual lumber they at the site and one of them was pissed off cuz he said something about his girlfriend or something. Yeah. So one like, of them was dating. I think he was, no, I think he was dating that. somebody's sister or something. Yeah. But in wow. any case you know, uh, yeah, they got. I I know there were some disgruntled witnesses because Travis got all the attention. Travis is, is like travels the world and goes to conferences and and shares his story because it's a phenomenal story. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's it's a what I like about it is is how many uh, 
how many eyewitnesses there were. I like multiple eyewitness cases. Those I find particularly of interest because they all have to be lying. And then passing lie detector tests and maintaining the same story since 1975. I mean, it's, it's, uh, yeah, I don't even know if Heineck, I'm sure, comment. I don't know if Heineck investigated. I'm sure he must have. I don't know. Anyway, so, um, but yeah, again, getting back to what they what they do, what they do, do they obviously if the story's true, if they carried they 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 didn't put him back at the location in which they took him because he would have died most likely. Mm-hmm. They didn't drop him off in the center of town because they would have revealed their themselves. But they cared enough about him to put him back where deposited him just on the outskirts in a little in an area that was like a little like you could quickly get down below the site of, you know, the residential area, drop them off and shoot out of there. And, you know, chances are you would remain unspotted, unseen. Yeah. It's, it's, I I can't even. I think about that. Like if that was true too, like if it is true, imagine living your whole life with that. I, I believe me. I know. Well, you know, uh, I think about, you know, you got a lot of, ufo reports where you know oh i saw this thing and it moved around whatever but when you have something that unambiguous when you have like a landing or a face-to-face alleged contact with these beings or a crash recovery like roswell or moment of contact those are cases that there's no gray zone yeah it's either proof we're not alone definitive proof or it's a big hoax. And in the case of like Roswell, for instance, everybody, 90% of the people that were involved with that cover up at the time that announced it to the world publicly have all gone on the record on camera saying the weather balloon story was a hoax. It was just a cover story. What really crashed was not of this world. And then you've got, you know, you've got the, the, the moment of contact, you've got a, a, it's the Roswell of Brazil, but that's more recent. You've got an entire town talking about one aspect or another of that story. You'd have to get the whole town to make it up. I mean, you know, really compelling stuff. Not impossible, but again, like we've been saying, the more that you have it spread across all different types of people to say nothing, a lot of people yeah. in one situation, which is compelling. And, and the more get... they corroborate, it's like either there's some crazy intelligence mind fuck shit going on here. And, and I remind or... your audience, I fight so hard for so long, 12 years on moment of contact, 12 years going back and forth to Brazil, where you find a witness you try to find like where they're living and then try mm-hmm. to persuade them to come forward. They don't want anything yeah, to do with me. They're scared. That changes your perspective because you're you're not getting someone out, hey, I saw this, you know, come talk to me. It's like, no, you're finding them and then you're trying to spend years persuading them, convincing them this is gonna be safe, this is gonna be okay, we're gonna take the story seriously, you're gonna be in good hands, you're gonna be in good company. You know, and the more exposure you have, the less likely the military is going to screw around with you. Who, I'm, I'm just thinking of this because you say that, though, and, and this was something you've touched on today. I can't remember if you said this earlier, so I apologize oh, if, yeah. if this was already said. But was did David Fravor get approached or did he? Well, it came out. 
It came out because of what Christopher Mellon did. Christopher Mellon did, But yes. then, like, people didn't know David Fravor's name. They that, just knew there was the Nimitz or something like that. Yeah. So did did he approach somebody, or did someone find him? The New York... Okay, so apparently, internally, this story had been out internally, not never officially acknowledged or no evidence was released that that I'm aware of. Now, I don't know if... Well, I know that for sure that David Fravor's name and photograph, he participated in the New York Times article, because the New York Times, I spoke to the people that wrote that article. They said, you have no idea the level of due diligence that the New York Times did before they were willing to print that story. They wanted proof of everything. They wanted to talk to Senator Reid. They wanted documentation of the program existed. They wanted the DOD to verify whether or not those graves were real. They wanted to talk to the pilots. They wanted to... They, I mean... The writers that I spoke to, Ralph Blumenthal, Leslie Kane, Helen Cooper, they were like, you know, the level of, you know, cross-examination, just due diligence before they were willing to print that. It was on the front page. And um, and you you had said this too. Yes. Like you had described, it was the four guys at the Nimitz. What was the term you had? It was the pilot and the it was oh, a W? Oh, we called him as Wizzo. I don't know, Wizzo, it's the backseat passenger. Okay, I didn't stop you to ask what that was. Yeah, was like, that was, fuck is a Wizzo? you'd have to but, look it up because that's what, that's what David Fravor, he's my Wizzo. He's like, me and my Wizzo and them and their Wizzo. <laughs> so like, just, just to go back to it though, because you mentioned it, you said it was the Tic Tac and it was moving and it was moving at incredible speeds, but... The thing that is covered, you cover in the phenomenon, and David's talked about on a bunch of podcasts now, is that I forget what the wording was. Maybe you'd remember, Alessi, but he was like, you know, it, didn't, it didn't move with, he used something, like some type of word. He, he said it would move side to side and change direction. Yes. Like on a dime. It yes. wouldn't have to have any momentum slow. It would just boop, boop, yeah. boop. Yeah. And he described it like going in a square or whatever. And then you have the radar video of this, which I think is on YouTube. So I'll put that in the corner of the screen. Yeah, 2004 Tic Tac. Where you even see it leave the screen. But how, how big did he estimate it might have been? Um, like exactly? I think he said it was like the size of, 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 a, of his airplane. Okay. Or maybe a little smaller. So it's far away from him, but it's close enough that he can see it, and he can see it on yeah. the radar. And when you're and when you see the tic tac shaped object dart off to one side, the airplane is flying straight at it for quite some time. Okay, and then it shoots off quickly off to one side. Now David Fravor is so funny. I was talking to you earlier about you take the parallels between eyewitnesses, pilots in the forties and fifties, and then you juxtapose them with David Fravor and some of the you know more recent sightings the 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 the, the observed technology is identical they all just say you know I didn't see any wings I didn't see any tail I didn't see any exhaust plumes I didn't see any heat signature I didn't see any you know visible it didn't make any sound like you know everybody said the same and then when it take off it was just yeah. gone it's just amazing you know and then you, you know you have so you have like how much evidence can you get if you can't get your hand on the actual craft? All you can get is sensor data. You get the radar. You get the the, 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 the cockpit recordings. You get the visual, right? I mean, what else, what else can you get if you can't catch the craft to prove that it's there? You yeah, because the, the question there is that is that some unbelievable like technology that well, we don't have which goes to that question but also like going back to the travis walton one is I, I don't 
I must have dozed off during that podcast. I would remember that. Mm. But, you know, seeing it, he describes it different than everyone else. They're humans. Yes. Like, what well, if that's well, but one But not of the them. first ones he saw. Not... The first ones were... The, oh, when he woke up on the table. When he woke again. up on the table and freaked out, those were big heads, so big almond shaped eyes. <laughs> All right, mm-hmm. take that back. Yep. He saw those first, and then he saw these God, two. so much here, man. Uh, oh, isn't God. it crazy? And, and uh, How do you keep this straight? Yeah, well, you know, here's the thing. There is so much bullshit yeah. out there. Obfuscation, okay? That's the word of this, of yeah. this podcast. Because... If you throw in a bunch of alien babies floating in incubators at Alpha Centauri, boy, that just gets the scientific community to just go, I'm not going anywhere near any of that bullshit. <laughs> you have to wade through it to get to the core. I've said this a million times, and I've said this since I started this investigation, this journey of mine, that the vast majority of UFO reports from around the globe can and have been explained away in prosaic conventional terms okay mm. you know weather balloons misidentified aircraft lightning phenomena whatever right however there's a core 10 or 15 percent incredible credible observers of incredible things and those cases are the ones that I focus on. Everything else is just noise. Sure, UFOs can be weather balloons. Sure, weather, they could be flocks of geese. Sure, they could be a super-secret stealth military craft at Lockheed. Whatever. Yes, all the above. No question. The question is, are any of them proof that we're not alone? And I would say, yes. Mm-hmm. In fact... Most of the people in the military that I've talked to, like, I remember this one interview I did. It's so funny. I was like, well, talking to this military guy in England, what do you, what do you, what do you think it is? Like, what are we, he just went (laughs) (laughs) like that. (laughs) It comes from up there. (laughs) Yeah. And they've, you know, they'll tell you, you you know, and that's another reason why I'm, I'm I'm embarking on this new project. This new film project because hold it, hold, don't say it yet. We're okay. we're we're we're, we're going to put that in here. I want to do that for you. Okay, but I got to go to the bathroom. This, okay. this is this has been very interesting so far. I had said maybe twenty minutes ago or fifteen minutes ago there were two things I was going to bring up, yeah. and I wanted you to go through each of them. You ended up going through the one. I never got to the two. Oh. I'm going to for people out there. I'm going to table that second one because okay. I I actually want to get to moment of contact now okay. when I come back, yeah. and then we'll talk about that documentary got it. Thing yeah. too. That's, All right, cool. it'll be perfect. If you haven't liked and subscribed yet, please do that. Share the episode around. Thank you to everyone who's been watching so far. All right, guys, that is the conclusion of episode one of two with James Fox. You heard that correctly. One week after this video is uploaded, there will be another one. So that will premiere the following Saturday at 9.30 a.m. And it is on a completely different topic. This episode covered the phenomenon and James's work around that documentary and UFO sightings in the 20th century and 21st century. Next week's episode is going to cover James's most recent documentary, Moment of Contact. We are going to have all kinds of exclusive clips in that episode. It was over three hours, and it was the most in-depth discussion James has done on that documentary since it's been released. So can't wait to share that one with you guys. I also want to note 
He forgot to get to the Harry Reid story and the backstory in this episode. At some point in the next conversation, he does cover that as an aside, so you will hear that. And as I mentioned earlier in one of the cutaways of this episode, I am putting 15 minutes of my conversation with James on Patreon this week because it was in between the two episodes. It had nothing to do with either of them. So we're going to make that some exclusive content. And you guys can hit the link down in the description below to go join that page and join our $5 a month subscription for content just like that. Oh, one other thing. We are doing a Reddit page as well. There's a kid out in Minnesota who wants to start one. So... I told him to have at it, and it's called Julian Dory. That's the name of the subreddit. So I'll put that link down in the description, and hopefully we get it popping over there. That said, though, you know what it is. I'm Julian Dory. Give it a thought. Get back to me. Peace.